Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Today is a special edition collaboration episode with Passage Press. It's a four-hour-long discussion and presentation, which is only part one, of the Open Letter to Open-Minded Progressives by Curtis Yarvin, a.k.a. Mencius Moldbug. The book is a print version of his blog entries to Unqualified Reservations. This book is only volume one of a planned series of volumes that will cover the entire blog. In this edition, in this episode, we discuss the legacy and an introduction to the open letter, what he's doing in the open letter, and uh, what impact and what effect he had on uh, subsequent American political discourse, which is quite significant. And then in part two, we get into a discussion on his concept of the cathedral and what exactly that means and what exactly that is. There's another four hours that is much more in-depth and comprehensive that will be coming soon. So we want to announce that Passage Prize Volume 2, Rewilding, is available on the Passage Press website, as well as Unqualified Reservations Volume 1. Unqualified Reservations Volume 1 is $40. It's hardcover. And the Passage Press, uh, excuse me, the Passage Prize Volume 2 is also hardcover. It's a limited print run of all the winners, the top three, as well as for each category as well as the editor's picks in poetry, visual arts, essay writing, and fiction, which are the four prize categories. Now, this year, when you buy the Passage Prize, uh, this is volume two. The first one was called Exiting the Longhouse. This year, when you buy the Passage Prize volume two book, which is $275, you're also given a ticket. The book serves as a ticket to a Passage Press event in L.A. in 2024, which will involve some of the people involved in Passage Press, including the owners, the operators, the editors, and uh, some of the prize winners and the judges. Uh, Stay tuned for more announcements on that. And also stay tuned for more collaborations between Passage Press and Astral Flight Simulation. I have a good relationship with the company and with Lomez, the uh, founder and editor who has been on my show twice. He also makes an appearance on this episode. And uh, there's also a Passage Prize Volume 1 episode that will be coming soon. Now, these episodes will be free to all subscribers to my Substack, and they will eventually be on iTunes and Spotify as well for the general public. But we wanted to have a special release edition for subscribers to my Substack only. You can become a paid subscriber to my Substack for $5 a month or $50 a year, in which you'll get either exclusive paid subscriber-only releases, or you'll get episodes that are available on iTunes and Spotify that have another hour, hour and a half discussion and further in-depth analysis of the uh, literature and the political ideas, the philosophical ideas that we discuss in the body of the episode. Uh, It gets a little bit deeper and a little bit more elaborate. But again, this is a series of four or five discussions, as well as the Passage Prize episode, which will come out soon, uh, about the artistic revival and the reimagination of the political sphere, the philosophically political sphere in American politics and American culture. 
So please stay, stay with us. We have much more to come. There will be much more of this. And visit Passage Press, the website, and uh, buy any and all of their books that are available there. There will be a link in the show notes. And uh, follow Passage Press on Twitter. There will be a link to their Twitter page as well. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for uh, listening to this announcement. And we hope that if you like what you hear here, you become a subscriber to my Substack. You become a follower of Passage Press on Twitter. Because all of the work that Passage Press is doing is going to be elaborated on greatly on my podcast for as long as Passage Press is operational. So again, enjoy this discussion. It's quite long, and uh, it's only the first half. So if you like what you hear, we hope to hear you again. We hope to see you again. Thank you. The internet is an ocean that we invent as we explore it. In the murky darkness of virtual places, there could be dragons, shabbats, leviathans. Certainly I have heard voices on the web who say we will discover what will be God if we reach the side of the ocean floor. Hey everyone, thanks for coming. We're uh, waiting for some people to show up, but we can start shooting the shit now. Um, This will be a series of spaces on unqualified reservations, Neo Reaction, and Curtis Yarvin. Um, And it's part of a reading group project, but it, it, it doesn't have to exclusively be the reading group chat although it will every episode or every issue will start out that way um people from the chat are in here now so uh with a few exceptions of people that i know who've like read the book or have opinions or or insights on it uh generally speaking it will be maybe an hour to an hour and a half of people from the chat discussing it and uh then after that so if people are here that want to talk about this stuff that's great and we we'd love to have you but be prepared to probably listen for a a while um so i'm trying to see who's here so if you're in the chat i'm just gonna start like throwing the mic to you but you don't have to take it you don't have to speak um the chat kind of got delayed because the book started shipping late and um the book shipped late so we started reading late and then i got a really bad cold i I don't know i didn't go to the doctor but i felt like i had pneumonia or something (laughs) so i just like sat the chat out for like a week and like didn't even participate but it's finally kicked off like for real uh and we've had some really great discussions and a lot of the discussions are very wide ranging. So people bring things up that are like, if we were to talk about everything in the space that comes up in the chat, it would take, you know, just dozens and it would like never end. 
dozens and dozens of spaces, hours and hours of content. So um, for those of you, so I'm, I'm, if you're in the chat, I'm throwing you the mic just so you know. So just pay attention, uh, take the mic. And I'll probably just be doing this until just uh, for the people here until nine o'clock. So, you know, bear with us, please. This is just kind of um, maintenance until we're ready to go. I see a couple people that are not in the chat, but uh, definitely want to hear from. And I also only have a certain number of mic spaces. So hopefully everyone will be able to get the mic. So again, right now, I'm just doing maintenance. We will start the discussion proper in a few minutes. Good. People are starting to pour in. If you are in my uh, group chat for this, uh, look at your screen because I'm sending you an invite. And um, by the way, the group chat filled up, but I'm willing to make a second group chat if people want that. Uh, and, you know, you don't have to be like a Moldbug fan or aficionado. Um, you don't even have to like Moldbug. We can just, you know, we can argue. I don't, I don't care. Um, I adhere pretty closely to the general thrust of his arguments, even if there's some departures with details here and there. And I hope over the course of this, these, this series of spaces, those of you who listen in, I'll make the argument for why I um, adhere to him while having some disagreements with him. Some of the disagreements I have with him are the same disagreements that other people on the right have, by the way. I see Spurgler in here. Um, Spurgler is a big Spengler poster, obviously, who he gets his namesake from. And, uh, you, you know, I, I think Yarvin, some, somewhere I read, and I haven't read everything Yarvin's ever written, so maybe he says this somewhere. But somewhere I read that, like, Yarvin got the idea for Neo Reaction. Well, Yarvin doesn't call it Neo Reaction, but for what we know of as Neo Reaction from reading Prussian Socialism, the Spengler book. And basically, like, his, uh, like, vision for, like, a future state is modeled on Prussian Socialism. Uh, I don't know if that's true. I did ask Yarvin. I've, I've had the, I've had the uh, honor <laughs> of interviewing him on my podcast twice now. And I got to ask him the first time. I think it was on air. We didn't really have that much off-air banter. So I think this is in the episode. If he's read Decline of the West, and he said, yeah, it was a good book. Um, so I don't know if anybody here is like a, a Yarvin completist. If he says outright that he uh, read Prussian Socialism and based some of his philosophy on that, I would really like to hear that. But... um. Yeah, I guess the only other thing I'll say uh, is I wanted to make and then we'll start like for real. I wanted to make it clear that um, I endorse or follow Yarvin's. I don't know what to call it, philosophy, program, political philosophy, because I think it's the most realistic 
it has the best shot of winning of of actually like coming into being in reality someday um but that doesn't mean that like i'm like a fan of the guy necessarily but i am a fan of the guy because the dude like is like the most famous you could possibly be as like a blogger and like he came he allowed me to interview him for my podcast before my podcast existed like i hadn't yet released an episode and i like kind of um i think i said this in the episode i kind of like sent a couple emails to a couple people that like i barely knew that i thought might know yarvin for like one reason or another they they somehow there was some sort of indication that they had like communicated with him at one point and it turned out that one of them was a real life friend of his and the guy was like sure like you seem cool your project seems cool like i'll ask him and um you know he got back to me and i was like yeah i'm like really into the passage prize and i want to uh, i want to interview every judge from the passage prize this was last year it was geo zero uh ben braddock and yarvin and Yar- uh, yarvin didn't know me from adam my show didn't even exist yet so therefore any audience that i had was obviously going to be his fans and he agreed to come on so that like really like was a big deal you know what i mean it really like told me that the guy cared more because because i have had i have had somebody like tell me to fuck off because they were like way too famous for me which side note i probably shouldn't say this but the guy was gay and i was like why what did i expect (laughs) asking a gay dude to come on the show i'm like I should have expected him to act like a faggot because that's what he did. But anyway, no, no more of that talk. No more of that talk. We're politically correct here. I'm a centrist. Uh, uh, we love our, no, we don't. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We don't love them. Um, all right, here we go. We're going to start proper. A uh, bunch of people showed up. So I just want to reiterate that this series of spaces is going to be about unqualified reservations and the beginning of the space is always going to be people from the group chat. So if you aren't in the group chat, but you want to have a discussion, I ask you to kindly hang out, listen, uh, and wait for an hour, hour and a half in, and then we'll open it up to the audience. Um, but we really want you guys here because it's really going to make this, um, you know, it's going to make this as good of a discussion as it's going to be. And I'm going to be releasing it on my podcast as well. So if you stick around, you can say that you're famous. You are on Astro's podcast. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of people in here from my chat that I tried to give the mic to, and they don't have it. But um, Dallas, Adrian, they do have it. Ace, I see you, brother. I will give you the mic when we open it up to the audience. Oh, and the last, last piece of maintenance here, and then we're going to start, is um, a repeat of the announcement that if you like this discussion... You want to be in a group chat. I will open a second group chat if there's enough interest. So, um, Ash, I mean, um, Adrian and Dallas, if you can tell us uh, the one formal question I want to ask everybody is if this is your first time reading Unqualified Reservations or if it's a reread. And I'm going to try to get the mic to these other people while you guys are going. Dallas, you go ahead first. Um. I first heard of Yarvin in 2016, so this is a reread for me. 
Um, but uh, yeah, I've, I've, I've followed him for a very long time. This is also a reread for me. Uh, I discovered Yarvin. We didn't know who he was at the time. It was Molebug back in like, I want to say 2013, 2014, I think. It was when I first started discovering NRX. And I got to it from a really weird roundabout sort of way. It wasn't um, via Yarvin himself. I actually found him kind of by way of Boyd Rice and like the neo-folk music community. Uh, so like just hanging out with like goth dudes that were going to like, edgy shows in the city i ended up finding out about yarvin wait what year was that i think it was like 2013 2014 that's really interesting guys were talking about it at shows you said uh yeah like people that were reading boyd rice's writing and like feral house uh books were talking about mishima we're talking about yarvin uh evola wow that is really interesting that long ago because i was saying on um I got to go on Oren McIntyre. Just so you guys know, uh, volunteering, if you know somebody who publishes books, volunteering to run their uh, group chat, uh, group read for the book might get you on Oren McIntyre. So I felt like that was was great. Uh, I was pretty nervous, actually, but I think it went well. Um, I said on that show that, like, I, I was actually online from, like, 2012 to 2020, just as a normie, like face Lord, like on like my personal Instagram, my personal Facebook, like on other people's blogs who had um, podcasts and stuff. And I would do this, like, this is what I did for like eight years online until I found BAP and uh, Frog Twitter and Caribbean Rhythms is I would run like book club, like group chats. And I would like sometimes go on people's podcasts because I would run their group chats for them on books that they were like talking about on their podcasts and stuff. And um, that's actually how I came across Daryl Cooper. I mentioned uh, on my episode that he was on, like he was in one of those groups, like book, book, book groups or whatever. I'll just call them group chats, I guess. Uh, so I knew him before he even started his podcast. Uh, and I started hearing about Moldbug. Actually, I heard about Moldbug in real life the first time actually in a bar, just like uh, Adrian said. It was around 2015. But then he would come up all the time, and Nick Land would come up all the time, too. And I would start reading them, but, like, I don't know. Like, I couldn't... It didn't compute at the time for some reason. But eventually, uh, it was when I found Bab. It was when I read Bronze Age Mindset and started listening to Caribbean Rhythms. And uh, the Claremont Review of Books started publishing, like, Michael Anton's review and Bab's article like his response to Anton that I got really drawn into Yarvin. And I think I said this on Oren McIntyre during the pandemic, like when everybody was like home and like not doing anything and everybody was online all the time. That was the first time I really read unqualified reservations. Now we're going to talk about um, open letter tonight. I tried to read the open letter in like 2015. Sorry if this is repeat to people who listen to Oren McIntyre and kind of said all this, but a friend of mine was in the bar and he was going on about like monarchism and tech CEOs and uh, the red pill and all this stuff. And I'm like, dude, what the fuck is this? Like he was using all this like 4chan lingo that I'd never heard before. And he was showing me unqualified reservations on his phone. So I tried to read it. And I got like four or five chapters into uh, I remember I got all the way up to the part where he was talking about um 
Chomsky. What was that Chomsky book he talks about? Manufactured consent. And I remember like not getting part of what I was reading. And then when I got to that part, I was like, okay, this is just like warmed over Chomsky written by some coder. And like, I, I like gave up and I felt like between the fact that I didn't see the difference between what he was saying with the cathedral and Chomsky and the fact that I was trying to read it on my phone and I had no idea at the time it was like 250 pages. I kind of gave up. So I'm glad that I got like circled back around because now reading it for the second time, because this is the first time I read it all the way through. I didn't finish it last time. I think I got up to chapter seven, maybe wherever he talks about manufacturing consent. Um, I now realize that like my mind wasn't ready for some of the stuff that he says in here. And some of the stuff that my mind wasn't ready for is actually in the first four chapters. So we're going to, we're going to be more detailed in the beginning tonight than the whole thing. But we don't have to only talk about the first four chapters. Actually, Dallas and Adrian, you said you read this before. Chud, New Age, Necro, and Taurus. Can you guys just go down that row uh, chronologically and tell me if this is a reread or a first read? Um, uh, this is a uh, reread for me. I read it first in 2016, I think. All right, uh, Chud. I don't know if Chud said he couldn't talk. Are you are you able to Yeah, I'm able to talk. This is a uh, first read for me. Uh, you know, all, all the ideas that I've seen with uh, with Yarvin have been, you know, filtered through posters on Twitter. Uh, and a lot of that through uh, you know, or uh, McIntyre. So getting the ideas straight from Yarvin himself through this book, you know, I think is, uh, you know, kind of a critical way to evaluate the work and the ideas without, you know, it going through uh, what others, you know, think about it and their biases toward it. Yeah, I, I definitely was antagonistic to some of his ideas that I had heard about third and fourth hand on online until I read them and realized that, like, one thing I will say about him, and one of the reasons I'm, I'm, I feel so comfortable like endorsing him, even when I disagree with him, is that his thought is very comprehensive. So you may disagree with something he says, but you, you, you can rest assured that whatever you disagree with, he argues very thoroughly. And some of the people who criticize him, criticize him as if he's got this like half-assed argument, which he absolutely does not. I mean, that is not one of the things you can criticize him for. And, I mean, if you want to see the power of, of true autism, like read any one of his blogs and, and it's right there. That's what autism looks like in a good way, of course. Uh, New Age, do you want to, or Taurus or former bowling champ, do you guys want to contribute to first or reread or uh, just uh, get, we can just get going with the content? Uh, yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, you're good to go. Okay, uh, this is... So the open letters, this is the first time I've read this. Um, I've read some of his smaller pieces. So I've read the Formalist Manifesto and From Mises to Carlisle and Patchwork. Um, but as, uh, as uh, Chud said, I was uh, I graduated in 2016 uh, from high school. So coming into the right wing at that time, you kind of heard all this secondhand. 
So really didn't feel like I needed to read the open letter, but uh, diving into it uh, has actually been pretty enriching uh, to get it firsthand from the source. Yeah, and uh, I'll just quickly say, um, I read the blog in 2019, and um, I get to say that this is actually the the, the blog that red pilled me. So it's like uh, that was like a huge event in my life, and I've been obsessed with it. <laughs> Not necessarily reading it, but thinking a lot about it a lot since then, and trying to find somebody to talk to about it. So very glad that I found you guys and thankful to Astral for organizing all this. Dude, I love to hear that. Um, we're having such a kumbaya <laughs> intro here. But I mean, guys, like, seriously, like, think about what I said before. Like, I, I went from 2012 to 2020 doing book, like, reading groups in, like, normie spaces online. So during that time, I had, like, read all sorts of stuff about, like history, ancient history about Rome and Byzantium and the Middle Ages, just on my own. I had been reading like Celine and Mishima, all just like stumbling upon all this. And I didn't have anybody ever to talk about it. And every once in a while, I would like bring things up like, man, it was like so much better to live in Roman times than it, than it is now. Like, I can't believe how gay everything is now. Or I would say things like, you know, like, you know, I kind of understand why like Mishima killed him, killed himself. Like, and anytime I said stuff like that, people would like go off on me and, and call me insane. Um, people would get like super angry at me and they'd be like, well, the Romans like crucified thieves. And I'm like, I know that's why I'm saying it was better. And then I finally discovered BAP and started listening to Caribbean rhythms. And I'm like, oh, OK, I'm not insane. Like, I'm not totally crazy. There's other people who think like this. And that's how I fell into, like, Frog Twitter and stuff. And again, like, to reiterate, I think that primed me for some of the stuff in this blog that I wasn't, like, I wouldn't have been able to process when I first found it. Because, for example, and I think this is chapter two, he talks about how like the post and I, I, you know, we can, we can start anywhere. I'm just going to start here. If anyone wants to back up and talk about something earlier, just go ahead and do so. It's, it's going to be pretty free form, but we'll try to focus on the first four chapters. Um, but he talks about how the post colonial world order is predatory. And he says the post colonial world order is like worse for everyone it's, it's worse for the people in the third world. It's worse. Hey, if you're not speaking, can you mute, by the way? There's a little interference. Uh, it's worse for the people in the third world. It's worse for the people in the, in the first world. And, um, but the key that, like, and remember, everybody listening, like, you have to put your mindset in the right place when you're, when you're talking about unqualified reservations. Because it came out in 2008. It came out around the Obama election. Like it came out when the whole entire country was like primed against conservatism, uh, evangelical, the evangelical uh, um, right wing was like a huge cultural force at the time. And of course, like the whole Richard Dawkins um, uh, atheism, uh, Christopher Hitchens, all this was like a big cultural force. Obama was like the Obama election was like the coming of Jesus Christ for liberals. So for someone to come out and start talking about 
how like South Africa was like good and that the people who 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 took over South Africa were like <laughs> were like wrong. But not only that, he went way farther than that because he said that they weren't actually interested. And this is the key. He weren't actually they weren't actually interested in like making things better for everybody. They were more interested in like accumulating power to themselves, concentrating power and riches to themselves and like their whole way of like running things was like a huge disaster. Now <clears throat> at that time saying things like that was like the most sacrilegious thing you could possibly say. It, it was the most scandalous thing and just I have to assume that the I, I don't know how many people were reading this back then but the audience at that time that was ready to hear that was like very like uh <clears throat> what's the word I'm looking for here? A very exclusive, um, s a small number of people. And it grew over time that like these things for me to say that for me to say like, Oh, the post-colonial wo world order is predatory. Obviously it's obviously worse than, than what it replaced. Uh, I feel like everyone's going to say like, wh like, why are you saying that? That's boring. Everyone knows that. So one of the things I want to talk about tonight is like, how has uh, the open letter aged and how has neo-reaction aged? And I think this is a great example of how, like, you know, the zeitgeist has, like, changed. Like, and Yarvin has to be given the credit for either doing it or getting there first. He either got there before other people did or he actually made it happen. Um, but either way, he's pretty important. So we can talk about that a little bit more but I want to let other people come in. But, uh, but the last, the last thing I'll say is like, he says that like the way progressives work is it's not like they're not actually trying to make everyone have a better life and fulfill, like, like reach their highest potential and bring to the fruition, the highest form of human flourishing, even though that's what they say, what they really want to do is just continuously tear down the existing world order and replace it with something totally new and then tear that down and replace it with something totally new. So he says like the post-colonial uh, governments are doing that. Gay rights are doing that. And he gives a bunch of other ex examples that like the tearing down of what exists now is more important than the actual like political agenda because when you tear those things down, and implement your political agenda, of course, you're the one who has power. You're the one who runs everything. Uh, so I don't know if you, I, I guess we should probably, we got enough people with hand, uh, the mic that we should probably do hands. If anybody wants to come in and talk about South Africa or any of that. Meanwhile, I'll be looking for examples from the text uh, to kind of exemplify what I was saying. So go ahead. No, we, yeah, we don't want any empty spaces like that. Yeah, so just throw your hands up and just leave them up and I'll call on you um, so we don't have any empty spaces. Go ahead, Adrian. I'll just jump in on that side. I uh, like that he connects he, uh, connects it throughout the text of Whig history going back to the Enlightenment, that there's been these series of changes where progressive, progressives use revolutions to, like you said, tear down the existing order and place it with something else. And what this ends up creating is a system where you always have a new group of usurpers of power from every generation that moves up in front of the next. 
uh, and it, it creates these incentivizations for people to continue to do that over and over and over again through history as it goes forward. Um, and on the topic of how does the text age, I, I like that just like knowing where like where Yarvin is going to go like in the last two years and not knowing it back then when I was reading it, it's funny how like you can very easily compare the Hobbit elf uh, argument over to the, he uses these other two uh, terms, but he calls them townies and Brahmin in, um, in open letter, which is really cool because they kind of line up one-to-one -to, -one to each other. Um, but I like that. And then um, just not, not to verge too far outside of open letter, but I also read through um, what was a formalist manifesto as well, where he identifies the two like separate forms of, I guess, like a political thought that exist outside of reactionary politics or conservatism and then progressivism, which he, he just applies to libertarians and moderates. And then it's funny because like you can apply moderates to the same kind of timelessness as progressives going back. Like, what is a moderate? Like, a moderate is nothing. It's just an amorphous blob. It doesn't have any ideology. It doesn't have any uh, viewpoint. And a moderate now is completely different from what a moderate would have been 500 years ago and then 500 years before that. Like, a moderate essentially doesn't have any ideas or, or any position whatsoever. So it narrows it down to just you have progressives and then reactionaries moving against them. And conservatives don't really conserve anything because they're always reacting to progressives. Uh, and that's always a constantly shifting goalpost. Whereas like reactionary politics is like the only thing that kind of stands as kind of like a, a, a stop to whatever progress can be. I'm curious what anyone else has to say. Well, I like the uh, the fact that you brought up townies and Brahmins. The townie, of course, is the is the conservative, and the Brahmin is the liberal. Like, uh, I, I like Brahmin though because it like is denotes like a priest. Uh, you know that like progressivism is a religion, and the Brahmins are the priests of that religion who like are are spreading the message. Uh, go ahead, Necro. Um, uh, yeah, I think that's overall a, a great intro, and I also want to echo thanks for organizing this. When I was reading Mulberg first, um. He hadn't appeared back on any talk shows and the comment section was closed on, on, on unqualified reserva uh, reservations. So I literally had nobody to talk about this with. Um, taking a step back um, in a retrospective, I think his great achievement is really being able to see the forest for the trees. I think the idea that... Um, to, to basically everybody uh, in the world, progressivism is reality. Like, they can't even conceive of it as a religion. They can't, like, conceive of any other model of government being uh, valid or even possible at this point. And being able to l l take a step back out of this paradigm and actually being able to describe it in a way that was at least accessible for autists like myself um, was really I think a great achievement and then you know he's saying you know this is not the way things have to be things could be better um, the world is actually run by a um, chaotic religious cult and it is run by academics and journalists. That whole uh, expansive insight is was revolutionary at the time. And as for how it's aged, 
he's really been vindicated and his ideas have only been picked up with time as people have been shown the reality. And I think that is one of the biggest things that happened with the Trump era is that somebody pushed up against the horizon made of cameras. That's what Trump did. And people started to see the reality of things. And he has only been vindicated um, in time, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, uh, I don't want to hug the mic too much, but I have to point out, notice that I said I found it in 2015. Couldn't really get my mind around it. And then in 2020, I totally dove in and, and got it. Because for me, being someone who I guess you would call a normie who was in those spaces, um, you know, I was kind of apolitical. I, I, I ran the gambit up until about 2012 <coughs> of all these different ideologies that I won't get into right now. But the point is, is like sometime around like 2012, like deep into the Obama years, like I stopped paying attention to politics and I stopped caring and I thought it didn't matter. And I didn't really have like any sort of ideology. And then when like the Trump phenomena came around, I was sort of like not really invested one way or the other. Like I, I, I hated Hillary Clinton. I had always hated Hillary Clinton. Um, so I wasn't going to endorse her. Uh, I, I didn't think I was going to like Trump because he was too like, I thought he was too like uh, in your face, I guess. And I didn't think that was effective, but I would listen to him talk and I would be like, Oh, well that's a good point, And that's a good point. And this other thing he said was a good point. And then I also started to notice that his in-your-faceness actually worked. So I was like, oh, okay. So the thing I thought about him that would kind of like made me write him off is actually his strength. Interesting. So I was like open to Trump, but not like all in for Trump, right? The point is, by the end of the Trump presidency, I was like, okay, this guy's good. This guy's good for America. All these people chimping out about him are full of shit. They're not actually listening to anything he says. And everybody on the left has apparently been full of shit the whole time because they say they care about America and they care about the worker and they care about this, that and the third. This guy's actually here to help these things uh, and they want to tear him down. And, um, you know, then when COVID happened, I'm like, OK, so this is just like full communism now. We are now living in full communism. Um, so with that mindset, uh, so so there was like definitely a shift in the in the culture in the in america that like trump hit on this old conservative uh vein of like the boomers but he also tapped into whatever it was Moldbug was like also like it, he was bringing it out and he was molding and shaping but he was also ascertaining something that was happening and i could talk about that more later because I think over time, Moldbug like watched the culture changed and he was like astutely commenting on it. And, um, you know, I think he made a lot of predictions that came true. But as like the country shifted to like accept right wing ideas more, I think people like Trump definitely kind of like primed me to be ready to absorb something like unqualified reservations, whereas I probably wouldn't have been if I tried to read it in like 2008 when it came out. Uh, go ahead. Go ahead, New Age. Um, yeah, I'm just going to comment on the 
uh, is him as kind of a forerunner. Um, he very much is a harbinger, not just in the ideas that he talked about, but he, he the form. I mean, he starts off as as being anonymous. A, that he's mixing uh, uh, philosophical concepts with with ideas and that are expressed in slang. I mean, he uses kind of the the Gen X Star Wars stuff a lot, but he is very much a harbinger uh, of of what would become all of us anons on on Twitter. Um, and then. Yeah, just at your point, yeah, 2016 was a big shift um, in it. I mean, that's when I came up and was kind of aware of politics. So the you guys might have had a longer track to Mulbug, but uh, for the next generation that came after you guys, it was pretty, pretty quick how quickly we got onto Mulbug. Um, so that's about yeah, it. Yeah, I, I like hearing that. I like hearing that. People who were, like, less indoctrinated um, – because I was, like, really into, like, libertarianism, especially, like, the ANCAP libertarianism stuff in, like, to, you know, 2008 era. And this speaks directly to that. But then he had some other stuff that probably was too far for me at that time that I am ready now to, to understand. Uh, go ahead, Appalachian. Glad to have you here, brother. Thanks, Astral. Uh, yeah, actually, I was I was uh, completely an ANCAP before I read uh, You Are. So that was that was a big deal to me, for sure. Um, but, uh, I just wanted to make a quick digression about, um, the Brahmin Townie thing we mentioned. Earlier. So, you know, I've read that open letter a few times or bits and pieces of it, um, since I first read it, but never the, um, like the first chapter. And so this was interesting in, in the first couple pages, I think it was the fifth page. If you're following along in the book, um, he introduces the, the, the Brahmin concept, but he calls them the, uh, what was it? The stuff white people like tribe. And uh, I have to say, I think if he used that messaging more often, he would get a lot less pushback because, you know, when, when you call people elites in, in our very like Whiggish culture, no one wants to be called the lead. Um, you've got all these people he's calling hobbits or elites or elves saying, no, no, I'm a hobbit, you know, I'm, I'm trad or whatever. But, if you say that, you know, Trader Joe shoppers run America, immediately, you know, people will understand what you mean. So I, I really, I really like that passage and just wanted to bring it up. So, yeah. That's a good point. We have to remember he's definitely like being incendiary on purpose sometimes. Um, like to call conservatives townies is obviously an insult, but I don't think he means it that way. I think he means calling progressives Brahmins as an insult. You know what I mean? It's funny, too, because he talks in the beginning of this about, like, uh, David Mamet abandoning the left, which is funny because David Mamet was, like, you know, he was, like, so of, like, the 90s. He wrote, uh, of course, he wrote uh, Glengarry Glenn Ross. And he was kind of this, like, cultural force in, in a way, especially for, like, the elites. Like, he's somebody that the elves would have pay paid attention to. I mentioned he talks about Obama. He talks about the evangelical Christian. Like, those were, like, the big things at the time. Whereas now, I, I don't know. Like, I, I think, this is a little off subject, but I would like to hear a response to this. I think, actually, Lomez is requesting, and he can answer this question. I almost think the neocons had more to do with like destroying the evangelical right uh, voting block than than any liberals. I mean, do you think there's anything to that observation? Go ahead, Lomas. Hey, what's up, Astro? Um, 
So yeah, what I wanted to bring up was like something very close to this point, which is I think actually Curtis's uh, most sort of prescient diagnosis in these early chapters is less his characterization of uh, liberals and progressives, which which he gets right. Although, well, maybe this is a question I'll pose to the group. Uh, obviously, in their own mind, they're not uh, encouraging entropy for the sake of entropy. They have some idea of some telos that they're trying to sort of accomplish with this sort of progressive horizon that they're always reaching for and through which sort of progressive, quote unquote, change is their vehicle for achieving that goal. And so I wonder, like, like, does Curtis get that right? Does Curtis have sufficient theory of mind or does Moldbug have sufficient theory of mind for the progressives he's describing to make sense of what it is they're doing. I mean, at some points he just, he sort of assumes they're just kind of like chugging along according to this, um, a sort of blind devotion to this sort of progressive religion. And maybe that's true. Maybe that is all it is, but I wonder if there's something deeper, uh, that he points to in here, but then, so back to my original point, the thing I wanted to bring up was that, what I think Moldbug gets right is his diagnosis of conservatism in 2008. And uh, I realized that some people here are like younger and don't remember living through Bush era conservatism and just how sort of intellectually shallow it was and empty it was, but also aesthetically shallow and uh, frankly sort of politically um, bad for the fortunes of any uh, like real viable American right. Uh, like Bushism was a disaster in almost every respect you can think of. And for someone who at the time was looking for alternatives, like, like you might have clearly thought of yourself as not uh, a progressive or liberal, and perhaps you'd already gone through your youthful libertarian phase and were searching for some third way uh what moldbug was offering with his evaluation of the deficiencies of conservatism was like spot on and that was part of the appeal and i think was part of what made this writing so prescient so i just wanted to bring that up as well yeah for for you younger guys let's make something clear here the era that uh, Lomez is talking about was dominated by people like Bill Crystal, David French, and and David Frum. Like their star was ascendant during the Bush years. Their what what you guys know them for is like their like <coughs> long slow decline into like basic irrelevancy. But they were like on top in two thousand and four. Sorry, uh, Astral. It's like even worse than that because they're. The people who were uh, going to succeed those guys, like the neocons, were like Paul Ryan in these like Jack Kemp, you know, like city of opportunity or like opportunity zone Republicans. And that all we had to do was get rid of like Social Security and uh, that would be like our ticket to a true like sort of conservative, you know, revival like American – uh, post-history golden age and in some ways what was going to follow um, Bush was even worse than Bush himself Lomez is right uh, 
ending social security was such a talking point back then. But he also made a good point about how uh, this gave intellectual conservatives like uh, a place to go or place to be. Cause for me, I was like pretty like left wing. Like I fucking read um, Ted Kaczynski's manifesto in like 2000 in the, in the New York times or whatever, like before Bush was the president, I read that. So that's like where my mind was at the time. And then I kind of like drifted all the way to like, I don't know. I, I'm just going to call it ANCAP libertarianism during o- Obama. And I started going right. But I feel like um, Moldbug was probably still too far right for me in 2008. It was really. Uh, so I, I do want to get into that. We can couch it for now. But I do want to get into the stuff I was saying before about um, like this, like, for example, nowadays on the right, it is uh, I, Lomez. I know I'm sort of like sort of, sort of like careening off of your point into something different, but. Anyway, nowadays on the right, like Trump, and this is what I meant about Trump and Yarvin sort of priming the culture in tandem, because people like Trump and Tucker talk about uh, the sh- the conditions faced by white South Africans now, and it's just a thing that the right, everyone on the right knows and accepts now, but. Like when Trump brought it up in 2016 or 17, it was a huge scandal and and he was like shouted down. But Yarvin was talking about it in 2007. I mean, later on in the book near the end, he talks about, uh, you know, uh, uh, what do you call him? Uh, He talks about like roving bands of uh, brigands, like murdering South African farmers. This is 2007. Like no one knew this stuff was happening back then. So uh, he was really on the cutting edge and he really did create, I I don't even want to say he filled a vacuum. He like created, he like created a whole like new vista for like the right to exist on. I mean, Lomas, I don't want us to dominate the conversation. We've got a lot of people here, but was any, who else at this time was like talking about this stuff that had any audience? Yeah. Sailor. That's the guy. Yeah, I wondered. I wondered if Sailor was around back then. Yeah, yeah, Sailor was around. Sailor was writing these articles at the exact same time. I mean, Larry Oster was another guy who people might not remember, but uh, there were there were a bunch of these figures who were sort of gravitating around. Like, you know, this was kind of the uh, the fork of like '90s era paleocons that made their way now into the sort of blogosphere. Curtis and Sailor are probably the most like notable of those, but Larry Oster, I mean, honestly, had he not passed away, he'd probably be a guy we'd all be talking about at this point too. So, so yes, I mean, there were guys talking about this stuff, um, but you know, for reasons that we can get into later. And again, I, I'm, I'm the same way. I don't want to dominate this conversation, but these guys were basically silenced. They were uh, sort of, you know, Sailor famously was kicked out of National Review or American Conservative. Um, they were guys whose voices were uh, not allowed to be heard in public company, and to some extent still remains that way, um, which is why we're all talking about them, because they were the ones who had something interesting to say. Someday I'd really like to like dive into the biography of Steve Sailor, because I didn't even hear of him until I came to Twitter. Uh, go ahead, Necro, and then Taurus. Um, I wanted to um, pinpoint something Lomez said uh, towards the beginning um, because I think it's very relevant to the specific reading for, for, for this space, which is do progressives have 
telos and um do they have uh, does Mulberg have a, like a proper uh theory of mind about um about them and the thing is is uh, they do um and uh they are he he talks about this sort of entropic disruption and recreation but really that is in pursuit of a um of a religious end uh to them uh, what that what that end is is discussed um uh elsewhere um but he he touches on it very briefly in this reading um and which is and I'm not going to go into it again because we it's it's discussed later in the text but it's um this idea that um the 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 right did he cut out for anybody else or just me did they get him yeah he cut out uh wanting to remake or make the world in their uh image is um is 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 from this idea this this driving force behind them um and um this religious motivation um Moberg doesn't fully synthesize this with his power analysis of the politics because he's his thing isn't really the religious analysis he sort of uh describes the ideas um and and sort of traces their ancestry which is it is brilliant no one else had done it uh, but he doesn't fully synthesize these ideas with the idea that the the analysis of people like Saul Alinsky, which he talks about, who are all about acquiring power. Um, and really, I think to understand progressives, you have to take both of these things he's described and and synthesize them into an understanding of how they work and what they want to achieve. So hold on, I'm I'm slightly confused. You cut out for a second synthesize his uh, assessment of power and with what with their telos yeah so so the idea that um so synthesize the, the two things being uh one that they um that progressivism is a, a method of uh achieving and acquiring power basically this this idea that it um supports um its own members and gets them into power and serves as a banner around which to rally on one side um, and on the other side the telos being their religious convictions that that um, um, from which they derive the results they actually want to achieve if that makes sense yes it makes sense and it's also a good way to understand why he writes it in the way he does and calls it an open letter to open-minded progressives. Because I think his argument, this goes back to what I was saying about post-colonialism, his argument, dear reader, you know, as he's, as he says over and over again, uh, to the open-minded progressive is like, you think you are a progressive because that's the right way to be because you care about all these like social justice issues and you want to improve the lives of other people. But really, progressivism isn't about improving the lives of other people. It's actually about consolidating power. And in so doing, you're making people's lives worse. That's what I think. That's why I think he tries to like address the open-minded progressive, because he's trying to argue that to them. 
Um, so this is excellent that you bring this up because this is, I think, chapter four or two or three. It's in the first four chapters, though, for sure. Um, and we'll let uh, ne- Neko finish your thought, and we'll let Taurus come in after. Um, I think, yeah, the the, the um, end of the thought is that, yes, it is about consolidating power, but it is also consolidating power towards this uh, towards this religious end. Um derived from their these these principles that right, well, trace back. So what is this religious end? I mean, is it full communism? <laughs> like um, what is because they're that, not, right? They're okay. not looking to in, implement full communism actually. Or at least they don't think they are. Okay. Well well the religious end it it's not something specific as communism. Um it's which is why you kind of see branches of progressivism like like communism occur and also all these other things, but really, um, this okay. This isn't something that he's talked about in this passage, but um, the the end is it comes from a few uh, Calvinist principles, um, primarily, are firstly the kingdom of heaven and earth, and secondly the inner light. So the inner light uh, is basically this idea, not just that all are equal before God, but everyone is created uh, of in the same manner. Like everybody is the same by default. And it, from that idea comes egalitarianism. Um, and that's one point. You know, and the second point is um, the creation of kingdom of heaven and earth. I keep saying that. What that means is it is our duty to create on earth... Um, the uh, utopia according to God's will. That, that, that's what they believe. Like, that is their whole driving force. That's what makes them a pre- predatory religion, is this need to make the world according to their principles. That's why they, you know, that's why the, 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 this, this, this whole thing about the, the party that wants to win will always beat the party that wants to be left alone. Progressives don't want to be left alone they want to take over everybody because that is their that is their telos that is their mission, and that's how it feeds into this um, uh, power thing. That's what that's sort of what drives them to 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 acquire uh, uh, power within the context of this religion and not just on a individual basis. Yeah, it is such a phenomenal analysis. Uh, go ahead, Taurus. Yeah. So. Yeah, I I agree with what you guys are saying. I think I might just slightly revise the terms maybe that – so I'm not totally sure how well – how right it is to say that there is this um, telos that they're seeking and that in order to do that, they're consolidating power. I think – so so one thing I'd love to just bring up briefly here is – uh, Milton's Paradise Lost, because it, it's actually about exactly this conversation. It's about the psychology of rebelliousness and the t- the strange, twisted psychology of it. And it has all because of that the the poetry is so great because it has all these sort of twisted concepts about you know a great anarch and things like heaven be thou my hell and hell my heaven. The reason I bring that up is that the same kind of question comes up. How can you say that there's a telos to an entropic process, to a process that is characterized by a reduction in orderliness 
telos is a fundamentally orderly concept because it's going toward this one uh, end. And, and so it isn't exactly a teleological, in my view, um, a, te a teleological um, political movement. It is held together more by a certain kind of game of oligarchs that it has all of these crazy and selfish and petty uh, distributed uh, ends that are all different and they're all ridiculous. And they sort of form, the, there's this emergence that happens and that thing is just this, this you know, crazy lizard object that we're, that we're dealing with. But the, there isn't really an, exactly a telos and it isn't exactly even really a consolidation of power. Do you know what I mean by that? Yes, but I think the problem with that critique, if I understand it correctly, is that they are in they are entropic despite themselves. I don't think because they're trying to concentrate power. So if they're trying to concentrate power, of course, they're not trying to dissipate energy, uh, which is what entropy is. And, and I, I think we should save the entropy discussion for a minute uh, to, to I think there's a lot of uh, insight here that we can mine and we can save the entropy thing. But I don't necessarily think the fact that they have a telos negates... I don't think, like, telos and entropy are uh, mutually exclusive, in other words. Right. So, like, sorry. Like, I, th I think their method of consolidating power is entropic. And I think he actually addresses that in the in the text but i saw appellation and new age's hands go up Fin finish yeah. your thought first and then we'll, we'll go to the other speakers so but um we definitely need to have a conversation about entropy so we can maybe save that for a moment sure and um yeah so i guess w the one thing i'd say in response to that is just that you know if you look at the way that a liberal thinks i i interact with a ton of these kinds of people because i work with a bunch of little nonprofits a lot of times in communications. And so I'm constantly hearing these executive directors of some save the children type of group uh, in Chicago. And they're telling me their vision, you know, and what it always is, is basically to put it in Yarvin terms, uh, like at the end of chapter four, we're going to tear off a little piece of power from the thing and do something good with it for some random yeah, underprivileged group of people. Right. And so, but so they say that explicitly because Moldbug says that. Well, exactly. that's that's what I'm saying. They basically do. They say, they, but, they, but they, if you think yeah. about it, it, sounds like a very virtuous thing. Like we're gonna ride right. in, we're gonna ride in, you know, virtuously, tear off a little piece of power, and then help these children with it. That's how you get stuff done in this country. That's how you do good things. And so, but my point is that is simultaneously a teleological. And an entropic process because the tearing off—that's the entropy. That—that's the yeah. falling apart of the state and of the system. Yeah. Now I wonder if that's in Saul Alinsky because he talks about Saul Alinsky at length in chapter two. Um, so I wonder if Saul Alinsky says that himself. Lomez is thumbs upping, and so is Dev. So it sounds like maybe because that would make sense if if Moldbug mentions that, and then these literal progressive NGO nonprofit people are saying the same thing. Uh, go ahead, Appalachian and the New Age. Yes, yeah, so I just want to say, like, I, I, I broadly agree with that. Um, I, I think that there is certainly a tension there between saying they have a telos and and then the entropic uh, principle that Moldbug mentions where they will you know, 
discard beliefs at will and adopt new ones as soon as they, uh, you know, are no longer useful or, or this other principle would be useful. So that there's, there's certainly a danger in taking their words as if they believe them because functionally they don't. Um, but I definitely, I do see a, a telos there because, um, that that bit about remaking the world world and their image is certainly something that underlies the whole program since its inception, really um, turning everyone into a little noble. And just to get like two specifics for the general principle um, that I can think of are no fault divorce and uh, drug laws, two things which don't seem to harm the you know upper classes very much. But then when you apply them to, you know, townies, terrible. And they, they keep trying to remake these people in in their image and a sort of blank slate um fallacious thinking that they do um but i i, I certainly do think there's a, a huge tension here between the um sort of alinskyist uh principle that Moldbug puts forward about the adoption and discarding of their principles and them having a, a telos so Excellent point about these things not hurting the, 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 the elves or the Brahmins, but hurting the townies and the hobbits. Uh, immigration's another one. Go ahead, New Age. Uh, yeah, I was just going to mention the part there at the end of Chapter 4. I think we briefly mentioned it. Um, I was just going to read it real quick. That I think it's at what we've been discussing. Um, he says, thus we, again, we see again Dr. Johnson's hypothesis. All the principles of Whigs, even those which seem austere and noble, are consistent with the objective of seizing power. Moreover, the Whig is concerned with his own power rather than with the state of society. He would much rather rule in heaven than rule rule in hell than serve in heaven, and he will turn any heaven into a hell to get there. And yet, he is quite sincere in all his wiggery, which makes him all the more dangerous. Great quote. Uh, I had so many quotes pulled up, but I'm finding that I can't like listen in and contribute and also pull up my quotes. So, anybody who's got quotes, please read them. Thank you for doing that. That's excellent. Uh, They'll they'll make uh, any heaven into a hell to get there. I believe that's a old uh, quote from uh, I forget what his name. It's an old liberal. I used it on a a, a, a paper one time, but it, it was something getting at that that point where he says um, the reason all states have been hells is because we tried to make it our heaven. Um, something along those lines. Yeah. Um, well, I, I have something to say, but go ahead, Odinson. Sure. Yeah. So uh, with respect to the telos part, uh, uh, when I was reading this, I really thought, so um, sorry, can you hear me? Yeah, loud and clear. Okay, great. So uh, like what happens is they have this directive, right, to do good, but uh, it, it can backfire. Uh, a good example is uh, uh, police cameras. So they'll say they want police cameras and this is going to help do good. This is going to help uh, give equality to everybody. But um, when they get what they want, when they get the police cameras, it actually reduces their power because it it shows the lie of their uh, way of thinking it shows that the police aren't as bad as uh, they've been saying they are so then they completely flip directions and suddenly uh, police cameras are bad and they're actually a violation of civil, liber- civil liberties 
because of privacy or whatever. So uh, with respect to the Telos thing, they have this broad mandate of doing good. And then in a little instance, they'll get a direction, but then as soon as they get it, they'll flip it back around. And to them, they're still moving progress forward, even to someone from outside, they've completely reversed what they're doing. So I think it's right to say that in the mind of the progressive, they have these goals and they're moving towards them. But from the, the broader perspective, the outside perspective, they, they don't, and they're just bouncing around like a random walk. Uh, I think uh, Yarvin mentions a random walk in, I forget which chapter it is, but anyway, um, where, where they'll have these, these mini goals and when the mini goal actually helps them consolidate their power, then they keep it. But if it actually burns them and hurts them, then they try and drop it off. And so that's the relationship between uh, can they have a telos, but can they also be a force of em entropy? Uh, because if they, uh, if they get what they want and it, strengthens their argument then they keep it and if they get what they want and it weakens their argument then they completely reverse and try and get rid of it so the the, the real goal the, the revealed goal is uh the accumulation of power but that's not the way that they see it they see it as the as the surface level object level thing of the civil liberties with the police cameras so this is an excellent point, and it actually made me want to find one of the quotes I wanted to read because it speaks to this. Now, I do I do want to say we do need uh, to integrate some sailor here, of course, because the reason why progressives in supported police cameras in the beginning is because they thought it was going to sh either it was they thought it was going to reduce police violence because it was the, a the police were going to be like scared of losing their jobs by being violent to perpetrators on camera. So it was going to make them behave and B it was going to show that the perpetrators weren't violent so that all the violence that the police uh, enacted upon them prior to the cameras was unjustified. But what the cameras ended up showing was that the police conducted themselves properly uh, most of the time. And the, the, the people that they were abducting were themselves violent and deserve to be shot, beaten, or whatever else happened to them. So that's why they reverse course on that. But your point is still well taken because um, it does look like they turn on a dime and there is a telos to it all. Uh, so let me read this quote. And if you guys will bear with me, it's it's a little bit long. I, it's, it's actually like four or five pages long. I'm only going to read maybe a page, page and a half of it. But... The point here is that um, he said, like one of the parts I'm going to skip reading, I'll just paraphrase it, is he says that if a progressive group actually like came along, changed everything, implemented their vision and like took power, it would run out of steam really fast because then everything would just stay the same and it would like be become conservative. And that um, the whole way that the progressive engine like keeps running as this like perpetual motion machine is that it's always and this is the cthulhu swims left thing which he actually like teases in this essay he talks about the leftward drift he calls it a peloton and uh and like the cathedral is like a peloton that's like drifting left 
So every time the progressives tear something down off the top and implement like a new order of morality, they then have to tear that one down and like constantly tear it down and put a new one in. So they're constantly drifting left as a result. So he starts to use homophobia as an example. Excuse me. So here's a here's a quote real quick. If you guys are bear with me, though, I think it'll be worth it because this kind of encapsulates everything we're talking about. So let's take homophobia, for example, because this is one area in which, despite my breeder tendencies, I'm in full agreement with the most advanced progressive thinking. And yet the destruction of homophobia is an act of violent cultural hegemony. Americans and Europeans have considered homosexuality sick, evil, and wrong since Jesus was a little boy. If you have the power to tell people they can't believe this anymore, you have the power to tell them just about anything. Now, that quote right there is enough, but I'm going to keep reading because uh, you'll see why. In this case, you are using your superpowers for good. Is this always so? And we'll just assume... Yarvin actually does think they're using their superpowers for good by tearing down homophobia, although maybe he's taking on the ironically taking on the role of the progressive. I'm not sure. Uh, but anyway, moving right along. As for the W force, and don't worry about what the W force is, it's it's decontextualized from something he was talking about earlier. As for the W force, while the invented pendulum is a good physical analogy, there is another entropy. Progressivism is obviously entropic. Obviously, its enemy is order. Progressives instinctively despise formality, authority, and hierarchy. Reactionary political theorists such as Hobbes like to conceive the state in terms of an ordered system, a sort of clockwork. Progressivism is sand in the gears of the clockwork. More subtly, however, the real entropic effect is in the progressive method of capturing power, not by seizing the entire state, but by biting off little chunks of it wherever it sticks out. The effect is a steady increase in the complexity of the state's decision-making process, and complexity, of course, is the same thing as entropy. Now, that's extremely important, because, at least to me it is, because what he's saying is that the way entropy plays out in real time in the world— The entropy that comes as a result of progressives is uh, the increasing of bureaucracy and the increasing of the rules. So like if they tear down homophobia to implement their like pro-gay agenda, what comes along with that, of course, is like a whole new set of spoken, written and unspoken rules that everyone has to follow. So you all of a sudden like this is like the bloating of the human resources department. Now, all of a sudden, you can't like do or say homophobic things at work. Uh, and, and then, of course, once that becomes the norm and this just, you know, to tie it all up in a neat little package, like to make the original point, And as we're seeing it happen now, uh, once you tear down that norm of uh, homophobia, which it's not homophobia, but that's what they call it. So just bear with me. We got to we got to agree on terms here. Once you tear down like the homophobic norms and you implement, say, gay marriage, right? You then have to like go the next step because this all started right with feminism. So feminism like was for women's rights. Uh, And then after feminism, we got gay rights. And then after gay rights, we got trans rights. And of course, by the time you get to trans rights, you have TERFs. You have trans excluding radical feminists. And the left hates the TERFs. Uh, the the, the, The left hates like the standard you know, old, like older generation of feminists because they constantly have to replace it. Uh, so then there's like 
a set of new social norms and a set of new human resources and 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 uh, what is it title nine uh rules and laws that you can break that weren't laws before there's all these different ways you can get snared in this web and then you put a new group on top of that and a new group on top of that and it just basically goes until i don't know who knows where we're going to be now but where we are now is 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 uh, is clearly really bad um and i want you know put your hands up i want other people to come in the last thing i'll say about this is just to take this example of this like uh cascading effect progressivism like constantly replacing itself uh, i remember reading about adorno who people say is like you know the fought like the 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 titan of wokeism like he was one of the fathers of the uh frankfurt school and he's considered like one of the architects of all this like um psychoanalytic bullshit that wokeism is he was apparently giving lectures in, I think it was, no, it, must, it was either in France or America in the 60s. And feminists were shouting him down as a misogynist and like shouted him off the stage. So you can just see the progression of like the entropy that Yarvin's talking about uh, building over time. I don't see any hands up, but I'm super, okay, go ahead, Odinson. Yeah, uh, so another example of exactly what you're talking about is uh with camp with dorms on uh, college campuses. So when the boomers were in college, we had feminists burning their bras and stuff. They're saying, you know, we want integrated dorms. We, we don't need chaperones, stuff like that. Th as if they were being treated like second class citizens. So then we integrate the dorms. And now they're saying, you know, oh, 25% uh, of women in college are raped. And that's exactly the problem that what they tore down was supposed to in theory prevent even if you if you believe their statistics which you know most of us probably don't but the point is so they they tear down this this uh institution they get what they want then they immediately say actually there's another huge problem but instead of just getting the the women out of the dorms we're going to stay integrated in the dorms but now we're going to have this like parallel uh um, like police process on the campuses where we can just go and say, oh, I got date raped and now we're going to have this tribunal and you're going to get kicked out of university. And this is just the encroachment of more and more bureaucracy and bullshit that gives the left more and more power and slows everything down and makes everything worse, even though their, you know, minute to minute goals seem totally to go f forward and back reversed where we don't want we don't want to be separated from the boys, but actually we must be separated from the boys. And they can just bounce back and forth with nonsense demands and just seep mud into everything and make it worse. Totally agreed. Go ahead, Lois. Yeah, so uh, I got to go here in just a few minutes, but I want to say a couple things real quick on this point. One is uh, like this, this also presents this passage as you were alluding to earlier, um, an interesting... Um, sort of a, a case study in Moldbug's rhetorical style and what he's trying to accomplish rhetorically. And there's a certain amount of kind of like Straussian second layer reading you can do in his uh, endorsement of, of gay marriage here. Um, but importantly, I think in reading this book, any, you, you have to keep in mind what he says at the outset and what's in the title, which is he's speaking to progressives and then uh, 
you know, uh, good Aristotelian rhetorical fashion, he's demonstrating some amount of goodwill throughout this book to his interlocutors or presumed interlocutors so that he can be persuasive to them. And I think Curtis gets a lot of heat or Moldbug gets a lot of heat. And it's actually even more so with Grey Mirror than in uh, You Are. But even still in You Are, I think it's important to keep in mind who his audience is here and what that requires of him rhetorically. So that's just one thing. The second thing on this point, too, is, again, what I think – I don't think it's missing from this book. But I think what we always have to keep in mind is how is a progressive like reading this when they – read about like homophobia and gay marriage and what happened to gay marriage subsequent to the, you know, publishing of this, of this blog and it's overturning, they would say, no, this isn't some kind of like Machiavellian uh, sort of reach for power or intentional, like uh, entropic, intentionally entropic project. They would say, firstly, as a practical political matter, these are just the wages of democracy there's like this open debate in society about what we ought to do uh, given this or that sort of moral slash political question. And on the question of uh, gay marriage, you lost, uh, conservatives. Like we won. We won the debate. We've convinced more people than you have, and therefore our side ought to prevail in this case. And so um, – like I think what what Curtis is also doing here is planting the seeds for the arguments that come right after this, and something I'm sure will be talked about, if not in in today's space, then in the next one, which is whether or not it's true that this uh, sort of cascade effect, this preference cascade that happens that um, creates the mandate for gay marriage is in fact a, an organic function of democratic deliberation in the public square, or if democracy and deliberation in this case is as much of a fig leaf as it is in the electoral sense. And what's actually happening instead is that progressives are entrenched in particular places where they hold the levers of power, in this case, discursive power to, uh, not make a persuasive case, but induce a kind of um, moralistic coercion or moralistic blackmail on people so that they are compelled uh, for the sake of maintaining their jobs and their status as quote unquote right thinking people that they have to then um, consent to a given sort of moral position and in this case, also let go of this like sort of latent and and again in 2008, you got to remember like even amongst people who were opposed to gay marriage, which included Obama, by the way, I'm sure everybody on this space knows that, but you have to remember the kind of time we were talking about. It's such a low level, latent kind of quote unquote homophobia. It really has zero impact on like how people are living their lives. It's purely a power play in this case. And so I think it'll be good, uh, again, whether it's today or in the next space, to think about how Curtis's arguments as they relate to like Walter Littman and this uh, sort of consensus creation and the kind of uh, epistemic coercion that happens through the cathedral uh, is brought to bear on the kind of changes we see 
in the case of homophobia and other things. This is, that's a really great insight. And based on things like that is the reason why I disregard most of Moldbug's critics, unless of course they engage thoughtfully with his actual arguments and his actual ideas. Um, a lot of people write Moldbug off basically because they hear this rhetoric and they're turned off by it or they're incensed by it or it sets them off, which he's doing on purpose sometimes for sure. Um, so in this case, for this example, you know, I don't know exactly where Moldbug stands, although I think Lomez's point is a very, very strong one. But I just want to say, and we'll just leave it here. I just want to say that I I think it's ridiculous. It would be ridiculous of me to write Moldbug off for this um, in the face of everything else he says that I agree with. Like, you know, we we don't have to have people who are like 100% ideologically pure every step of the way. Like, even if he's being sincere, um, I could disagree with this point and, and find value in the rest of his work. Uh, but Lomez makes a really good point, and, and Bulbuck definitely does what Lomez is describing all the way through his career. Uh, so, so yeah, like... You know, anybody who's new to Moldbug or who's listening that hasn't read him, you have to keep in mind that A, he's being rhetorical half the time, and B, a lot of his uh, critics are responding to that, and they're not really engaging with the argument he's making. Like, even in this example, the argument he's making is, like, such a strong... It's one of my favorite passages in the entire book, actually. So, anyway, I, that was probably, you know... Didn't need to be said, but that's where I stand on that. Go ahead, Necro, and then Taurus. Uh, I think I think Taurus actually had his his hand up first. It's hard to tell because he's got the OK symbol in his in his name, so I can't tell if his hands up. <laughs> if I see him out of the corner of my eyes, go ahead, buddy. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I'll say I. Um, this mostly comes from uh, when he was. Uh, uh, his his first tour when I think he first started uh, Grey Mirror uh, through the country I met him in Chicago uh, with a small group of people in a park and he had his kids with him and you know got to chat a little bit and um, I I really suspect well, my feeling from talking to him uh, and from reading him is I really suspect that uh you know, I hate to be the guy in the room that says it, but he really just isn't a conservative. I mean, it's really hard, I think, for a lot of people to quite understand where he exists. I know some of you really will, but the guy is not a conservative. I mean, I, I, I talked to uh, his kids and stuff and, you know, got a feel for the family. And like, um, I hope it's OK me saying that um, I'm not going to like share D details of what they told well, me. Well, he, he's not an anon, so I think you know he he yeah. advertises on his blog to like. Yeah, totally. Him. Yeah, so I think. But it's I okay. mean, like talking to his kids and stuff. But you know, like they're they're just the most <laughs> amazing uh, kids. Can you imagine this guy being your dad? Like they they just have they have this. Um, they they sit it. They really were kind of you know we were sitting at the on the in the grass in the park. Um, it's a really fascinating cross section of Chicagoans who come out for something like this too. But. Um, we were sitting just cross-legged in the grass, we had grilled some food, and his kids were just kind of sitting there, sitting at his feet, listening and piping in, um, uh, young kids. And um, But I really, you know, I got a feel for them a little bit, and I think, and 
it, he's just not a conservative. I mean, he's not, you might, some people in here, you might not get along with him. He doesn't really sh share those kinds of values. And like, you know, again, think of this tech CEO uh, president who consolidates power genuinely and actually crosses the Rubicon and, and all of that. I mean, think of this guy. He's he's not going to be necessarily a conservative and he's going to piss a lot of us off uh, for that. And he's not necessarily going to piss Yarvin off. So like he might just not be the guy that you want him to be. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, uh, no, I'll shut up there. Well, that's good. I very much want to talk about that during the general discussion, which I think we'll, we'll initiate shortly um, because that's an excellent point. And I want to, I want to, piggyback off that point with accelerationism which is not a conservative ideology but uh we'll we'll hold that till we open it up go ahead necro um i wanted to talk about um uh, what lomas was talking just earlier about how this book was written as an open letter to my progressive that's the title of course and the um because the the genius of the first four and really okay actually the first five chapters is rendering so, the unthinkable thinkable guiding someone who is an uh, a progressive who is willing to um consider other points um if such a thing even exists anymore um and guiding that to um reaching conclusions and poking at this horizon made of canvas. And um, he does this in such a brilliant way. And there's so many, there's such a wealth of, of things to talk about here. But I'll keep, I'll keep, it, I'll keep it simple. The overall point is uh, progressivism, the central me mechanism of progressivism is um, the control of information and manipulation of people's worldview uh, by the cathedral and so what he is doing is he is just poking at the seams in this worldview and showing by 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 tearing at the scenes the the scenes showing the complete uh, falsification that lies behind it and there's so many examples to talk about but the one that has always stuck out with me the most is his description of um lord gray and the, the the first world war and i want to uh read just a bit of his his writing which is really mostly gray's writing um just to uh, illuminate that for those who are reading um along this is right towards the second or towards the end of the um second chapter so i grew up learning that the first world war was fought to basically stop German aggression. Um, um, but this is what, this is what um, Moberg and Lord Grey write. Uh, note that for most of World War I, it was Germany who wanted peace on the basis of the status quo and the Allies who insisted that Germany be defeated and militarism eradicated. Grey re reproduces a memo from his ambassador in Washington that states the basic German perspective as of September 1914. German ambassador has stated in press that Germany is anxious for peace on the basis of status quo and desires new territory 
but that England has declared intention of fighting to finish for her selfish purposes and is consequently uh, responsible for further bloodshed. Gray response. Germany has planned this war and chosen the time for forcing it upon Europe. No one but Germany was in the same state of preparation. And he goes on to say, we want in future to live free from the menace of this happening again. And in a later quote, Gray also says, nothing but the defeat of Germany can make a satisfactory end to this war and secure future peace. This um, um, Referring to the earlier propaganda piece for Germany, he's saying that it insinuates that France, Russia and Belgium could have satisfactory terms of peace now and that they are continuing the war in the interest of Great Britain to affect the ruin of Germany, which is not necessary for the safety of allies, but which alone will satisfy Great Britain. It is just possible that this insidious misrepresentation, false though it may be, may create in France, Russia, Italy and Belgium a dangerous peace movement, a movement positively unfriendly to us. We should emphasize the impossibility and disgrace of thinking of peace to the allies are secure. Until that time comes, we should use all our efforts. Sorry, I skipped a bit. But it should be let, let be understood that it is for them whose territory is occupied by the enemy, whose population has been and is being so grossly ill-treated, rather than for us to say when it is opportune to speak of peace. Till that time comes, we use all our efforts and make every sacrifice to defeat the enemy in the common cause and have no other thought but this. So in summation, what he's presented here is the, the fact that the war could have ended way sooner than it did. And the reason that it didn't was because the Allies, led by Great Britain, decided that the war could not end until Ger Germany was rendered unable to, to, to um, do the same thing again. He says, we want to live in a future, we want in future to live free from the menace of this happening again. And for me reading that, this was a real red pill moment to understand that the mythology that I had been fed through my education was itself propaganda. Um, and that that sort of um, approach is the overall um, approach of these first five chapters is to say to the so-called open-minded progressive, the mythology the the mythology you have received is a mythology. It's uh, it's not an accurate perception of reality. And if you accept that, and then he says, if you accept that where are you then led to believe? And that's when he starts getting into discussions of actual reactionary thought like um, classical international law. Which chapter was that? I remember that passage. That is at the end of um, more historical anomalies. When he's talking about Lord Grey of uh, Falodon. Well, this is interesting. You're making me want to go off on a tangent here because I was reading that in Germany, after the war, they believed, the military believed they could keep fighting, that they could bring like another million people to the fields. And the politicians brokered the peace and the treaty against the military's like wishes. And that's part of what mobilized the NSDAP, uh, which seems to contradict that guy's ass assertion. But uh, 
Um, well, I w- um, L- Lord Grey, the guy who's writing it, the guy I'm quoting. Yeah, is, I was going to ask who he was. He so he is. Um, he's he was a British statesman, and he was basically the primary force behind British foreign policy. Foreign policy, excuse me, during the First World War. Like we're reading the account of the guy who decided more or less what Britain did in the war. So he's hugely important. And what what to what end was he quoting this guy? Because I I kind of lost sight oh, of so, sorry, I realized that the quote that I, I copied it to another document so it wasn't complete. So I probably lost people. Um the the end that he's quoting um Lord Grey is he is he is challenging the belief the, the representation of World War One as a noble resistance by the Allies to stop German aggression. Um, that that the that the that the dreadful catastrophe that was the trench warfare, that was the millions of uh, uh, young men dying, that was the the um, everything that resulted from that was not because. Germany wanted to take over the world, it was because, well, it happened that Germany took some territory and then was happy to stop there based on status quo. That's what he's talking about. Um, he, he, he discusses this idea later in classical international law. What he, he's bringing this up to say, no, actually, what really happened is that the progressive, the Whig faction that led Britain at the time decided that it had to utterly destroy germany in order to win good that's that's what i was going to try to bring that to that it was the progressives the quote-unquote progressives that you you are a progressive right because you care about peace and all this stuff that uh protracted the war um yeah yeah that that yeah that's 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 exactly it that's exactly it because by this point the the the, the progressive faction was um, well and truly in command of, of Britain. Well, I mean, progressivism really came out of World War I. Uh, uh, Woodrow Wilson and all that. But uh, Bones just uh, joined the, the chat and she put her hand up. So let's have Bones jump in. Thank you, Astral. Thank you. And and thank you, everyone, for participating. I've been listening on and off tonight. Um, and I wanted to make a point going back a little bit, um, you know, maybe to emphasize my token role here. I don't know. But when we were talking about moments. Oh, hey, let me. Chelsea's tending to babies. Um, we'll let her come back in a second, but I wanted to say if people are okay with opening up, it's been about an hour and a half. Um, we we can continue to discuss the material and the chapters at hand, but uh, we have brought up several general topics that I think people who haven't read Moldbug or who, who have but aren't in our group or who are peripherally familiar with his ideas can probably jump uh, piggyback off of. But um, I wanted to say I wanted to say something at the beginning, but I forgot to that one of the strengths of Moldbug, I mean, Necro just exemplified this perfectly, is that he brings in so many different thinkers and examples and very uh, obscure and like forgotten thinkers and examples um, 
and, and he's talking about he's he's writing he's reading he's quoting letters to the editor written in 1865 by some you know <coughs> excuse me anti uh, suffrage uh, southerner or he's talking about he's he's using these letters uh, from 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 British excuse me I'm getting over a cold and I'm like. My point is, is he he brings up so many obscure thinkers and books and texts and so many different examples from different periods in history that to do a close analytical reading of the text is like you have to be like a genius or you have to be like a historian to be able to do it. And a historian of like both American and European history of the 20th and the 19th century. So to go over this with a fine-tooth comb is almost like too daunting of a task. So I definitely set out to talk about this in relatively general terms because he brings in so many obscure guys that nobody's ever heard of before. Like Burnham was very obscure when Moldbug started writing. He was out of print and now like, you know, everybody knows who he is because of Moldbug. So it, it, it feel free to bring up thinkers that you're familiar with. But uh, at no point did I want to give people the mis I the the misunderstanding that I will be doing like a close read of Moldbug and all the sources. I remember one time Spurgler tweeted that uh, Spengler reading Spengler is himself an education because he brings in so many disparate things, po political philosophy, uh, uh, straightforward philosophy, art, art history, art criticism, music, music criticism. Uh, history, philosophy of history, and Mulbug is similar. I mean, reading like just the gentle introduction and the open letter alone are like a huge education in and of themselves. But anyway, I'm just kind of long-windedly uh, do doing some more maintenance here. So if you're in this space, you haven't read the the book or you've read it, but you're not part of the reading group, feel free to request the mic. I'll give you the mic. And uh, we can have like a, a general discussion. I, I want to talk about a couple things I wrote down here uh, for sure and, and take them farther. But uh, Bones, if you're if you're back, uh, I want you to finish your thought. Thank you, Astral. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. You know, people around here know I've got a whole bunch of kids and one of my older kids followed me out to the back porch where I came for some privacy to see what I was doing. So but but going back a little bit. Um, I just wanted to say, and I haven't heard this said, you know, everyone is, is very well read, but um, I wanted to say a moment that really struck me emotionally um, when I first started reading Mr. Moldbug was really just a very deep, almost really hitting you like in the, in the childhood emotions um, of a feeling of, of just how right monarchy is and just how right it is to have one person in charge at the buck stops here that all the pageantry associated with it with you know parades and a crown and a, and a and a scepter and a giant robe and princes and princesses and a castle and you know people can laugh at that stuff but we all like it you know i think we know we like it and we like it for a reason because it means something important. Um, and for me, just just reading kind of an intellectual justification for this thing that I kind of felt in my heart my whole life was 
was the best possible thing that, you know, one kind of feels like is lost to history forever and might possibly be revived again is an emotional wellspring of motivation that we shouldn't forget about. I don't know if you want to call it vibes or what, but for me, that's a very important part of, of this book. Um, so I don't know what you guys think about that, but I think it's important. I think that's an awesome point. And it's actually the perfect thing to open the discussion up on because, well, for many reasons. The first is that I, one of the things that I've noticed in the criticisms of Moldbug is that the things people don't like about him it uh, exposes the crit- criticizers, exposes the critics as having democracy, like the ideals of democracy, like deep in their bones. It's like that scene in Reservoir Dogs where uh, uh, Michael Madsen gets out of prison and he starts using uh, prison slang. And Chris Penn says, you've had you've had so much of that black cum pumped up your ass. It's coming out your mouth. Uh, I feel like people in America have had so much democracy pumped up their asses. It's coming out their mouths. And I'm like, I thought we, I thought we were right wing fascists. And now you're, you're like arguing about like the, the, the will of the people and like the, the little people having a say in politics. Like, no, like I thought we were against that. Like I thought that's what being right wing was, was being against like the common man having a say in politics. I thought checks and balances was like, the thing that was like ruining, you know, politics. Uh, so when people criticize Moldbug, a lot of the time, I think the criticism boils down to Moldbug advocating for like monarchy and people being against monarchy and in favor of um, in favor of democracy. Now, I do understand that the National Socialists, that this is an argument that they ha- people now have about them, which is that they they were a, f- a type of fascism with like a supreme leader that was predicated on like the masses and on mobilizing the masses. And like it started out democratically and of course it didn't end democratically. <clears throat> and while Moldbug does denounce national socialism in here, he also says that in order to get to this autocratic rule, we have to use democracy. We have to use democracy uh, to get the ball rolling, to get ourselves there. But uh what Chelsea's talking about, and this is one of the things that I had to like sort out in my mind uh, before, like before, like when I first was exposed to Moldbug, the guy who was sh- uh, talking about him and showing to him to me considers himself a monarchist and is always talking about monarchy, and that's how he sold Moldbug to me. It took me a while to realize, uh, years really, uh, to realize that like. The monarchists, like the Catholic monarchists that are out there talking about like the pageantry and the hereditary monarch um, ordained by God, uh, who are talking about like a medieval style monarchy are not the same thing as Moldbug at all. Like his CEO monarch is like a totally different like tech monarchy thing that is not a hereditary uh, ruler who gets his who gets his like who gets his like power to rule directly from God. He's a, like a, a, a business director who gets his power from a board of directors who can themselves be replaced. And it's like an interchangeable board of directors. And they can also replace the CEO. Like if he's not 
bringing the return to the shareholders. So Molbug's monarchism is a very libertarian tech monarchy versus uh, like the Catholic trad monarchy. And they're they're probably opposed to each other because I don't think and this is the last point I'll make on this. I don't think Moldbug foresees his monarch as like imposing morality on his subjects at all. Whereas uh, like a, a Catholic monarch would of course reign over a Catholic kingdom. And so I would think that these people want cat traditional Catholic morals. And Taurus brought up the fact that he doesn't think Moldbug even really is a conservative. And I don't really think Moldbug is a conservative either. Um, so we can compare and contrast these things. I see two hands up. Adrian, go ahead first, and then uh, Necro, hang tight. Uh, I think this is really important. So uh, to that point, uh, I don't think that Molbug fits the mold of what we understand to be a reactionary or a conservative. I think he's more of a pragmatist. And you sort of understand this the more you listen to what he talks about, uh, especially with the idea that a, a monarch isn't a hereditary monarch that has his absolute power um, delegated by the divine. Uh, he makes a huge point of pointing out FDR as also meeting the criteria for a monarch when he, um, uh, you know, discusses it within within the section of the book. And he also, I, I've heard other interviews with him, even when uh, he even uh, referenced a character like a Barack Obama also kind of fitting, or someone like that could fit the profile of a monarch if, if given or delineated that kind of power. Um, I, I, I think this is, this is important because it kind of lends to his origins. I mean, he is a, a Bay Area, you know, California guy. I think that his ideas on the distribution of pragmatic power kind of even fit into what we're seeing pop up with EAC uh, and like uh, effective acceleration. So he's, he's not a traditionalist in that sense. But um, but I, I do think that that type of pragmatism is useful in understanding how power works. Yeah, go ahead, Necro. That's a that was a great point, though, Adrian. Keep that in mind. I want to talk about that some more. Uh, mute mute your mic, Adrian, before Necro starts talking. Um, I uh, I think this question of monarchy is very interesting, um, and there's so much to talk about uh, there. But uh, what I wanted to just touch on for now is um, is I wanted to echo uh, something Bones just talked about about the sort of um, uh, emotional reaction to the uh, stuff he is saying, um, because um, to pick up what a Adrian just said, he really is a pragmatist. Um, and I think that that really that analysis really is um, absolutely right. And I think um, one of the key points where we see that is in his discussion of uh, classical international law. So we get these whole like five chapters, well, at this point, four and a half chapters, looking at this horribly chaotic, um, uh, entangled mess of politics and aid and um, um, funding and enabling terrorists and enabling violence and in invasions and, and um, revolutions and all this, this blood and chaos. And it really makes you feel pretty pretty down right and then he 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 finds this this niche book which i am determined to to acquire um this niche book on the elements of classical international law and reading that is like 
a, a breath of fresh air because suddenly you realize that things don't have to be this way. They don't have to be this 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 moraine of of diplomatic double dealing and 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 violence. It doesn't have to be this way, right? Um, and it is reading this 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 account where it's like, well, a war is just a war. And if there is a war between two nations, then you you have to let them figure it out. You know that's between them, um, and you sort of can draw. You can draw um, a, a, a contrast here with what happened in Ukraine, or what is happening in Ukraine, right? Where there's this, you know, nominally a territory dispute between uh, Russia and Ukraine. Um, and what what should happen according to classical international law is that Russia invaded, took the territory it wants, and then new lines are drawn based on the status quo. And the war and the war is the fighting is over, you know, within a month or two. Um, and that's obviously not what happens because that is not the the diplomatic truth of the world we live in. But I really found it intellectually and emotionally refreshing really like 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 coming out of the cave and into into the fresh air uh, understanding that things don't have to be this way things can be better there is um a possible world where 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 um we don't have all of this violence and chaos and i found that really um emotional i guess yeah yeah the monarch monarch in Instantiates order. He imposes order. You know, it's interesting that you brought up uh, Ukraine. I want to point something out here. Now, Moldbug doesn't really say this anywhere that I've read him. However, the fact that the neocons were the same people, <coughs> excuse me, um, the same people who perpetrated or the same type of people, the people in the same sort of class who perpetrated the war in Iraq that the liberals were up in arms against during George W. Bush are the same people who are perpetrating the war in Ukraine that the liberals are mad for now. And it's almost like the accusations that Moldbug is throwing at the progressives for being people who... um, who implement this like chaos and this violence and this like who are responsible for all of this like human misery and suffering that they put this veneer of like egalitarian, you know, sweet language on top of. It's now like laid bare and naked that like they're just like totally endorsing this like again protracted war that uh you know apparently people are are suffering and dying miserably in the cold over there. Uh, but 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 and why are liberals why are liberals and progressives supporting it? Because, you know, uh, Zelensky's for gay rights. So it's like Moldbug's uh, whole like framework is just now like that he describes like he describes the framework of like progressivism in the liberal world order. It's like laid bare. And it's just obvious that he would write the whole time about what their real motivations were. The longer this goes on, like the less I can talk at length because I just have to keep coughing. I think I might have allergies or something like assaulting my sinuses. 
But uh, Spurgler came in, and Spurgler, I wanted to 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 come up because I get the impression that uh, Moldbug gets a lot of his ideas from Spengler, at least in a general sense. I haven't read everybody Moldbug has read, so maybe this stuff is in other people's writing. I know there's a lot of Machiavelli in there as well, but of course Spengler read Machiavelli. And um, the thing is, is like if you consider there to be cycles of history, and I really want to talk about this, we probably won't have time, so maybe next time, um, because Moldbug is an accelerationist. He's not a conservative. Accelerationists don't conserve. They they move forward. Uh, and once you like read Moldbug, if you've read Nick Land, especially Xeno Systems, you see that that basically what Land, Land is basically like rehashing a lot of Moldbug's ideas. He's like basically like elucidating them and enunciating them in his Landian language, uh, and it's a little bit more direct. Like some of the things. Nick Land says in Xeno System, he's basically explaining what Moldbug means in much more direct terms, much more concisely as well, because Xeno Systems is like each entry is like a page, page and a half, whereas, of course, Moldbugs goes go on and on and on and on and on. Um, and so my point was that um, acceleration, if there's cycles of history that we're going through, if we're going through like a morphology of history and civilizations follow a certain morphology, we're not that that means we're going forward and that we can't like conserve anything <clears throat> at least not in any sort of like culture wide civilization wide uh widespread prevailing sense so the idea that like christian morality was like the prevailing morality in an earlier stage of western civilization say in the middle ages during catholic monarchism because that was like an aristocracy proper that was uh, that had a monarch sitting at its head, and that uh, the Catholic Church was like the arbiter of morals. So like everyone had to follow that way, and then things started to like slowly over time break down, like of that world, and a new world started to build up, and it was the Enlightenment, and reason took over, and then that started being like the prevailing moral order. It still kind of is to this day. Uh, and society sort of undertakes different different changes um, and uh, like like a, a liberal society has like uh, widespread education. Democracy supplants uh, feudalism. So people people all have this liberal education and what they use the liberal education do to do is to run like the mechanisms of the state to run state bureaucracy. And this state bureaucracy continues to like spiral and like accumulate and like grow over time as more and more people are enfranchised as more and more people are brought into the liberal world order and given this liberal education and placed into like the gears of like the liberal bureaucracy um and as that happens right democracy kind of like begins to concentrate in oligarchy and oligarchy looks like aristocracy but it's not aristocracy because it's comes you know a thousand years after the aristocracy comes so It's actually just uh, people who are benefiting from the liberal world order, making like a ton of money, who are starting to like take over the democracy with their money. And as they do that, uh, the the 
the political operations of democracy is more and more taken out of the hands of the people and concentrated into these oligarchs. And then as the oligarchs come and take power, they actually start to compete with each other and uh, they start to compete with with each other for control of the state. And perhaps one man emerges as like the strongest oligarch of all of them. And he takes over the state. And of course, the reason he takes over the state is because he has all these schemes that he wants to do like for his, uh, whatever his business might be. Um, and <clears throat> he needs like more and more money. He needs like tax revenue from the state to fund his projects. And in the past, most of the time, these projects were usually wars, right? So if this person is able to concentrate all power into himself to like perpetrate whatever his vision is, be it like conquering Gaul, uh, 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 taking over Rome, and making the empire like his personal, you know, business, right? The CEO monarch of Rome. Augustus was the CEO monarch of Rome. This is not a uh, this is not a monarch in the proper sense at all. It's a tyrant. It's a it's a Caesar. It's a totally different thing that happens way later on. And uh, morals are not really like not really like part of their agenda. They can't really impose morals on this society because this society has bred all these people that I was just describing to you who became enfranchised, who began to like themselves lobby the state for their own ends. And they started breaking off chunks of it. So the workers were able to break off, you know, and this is all in Spengler's uh, hour of decision. The old people were able to break off, uh, you know, retirement benefits from the state. And and the poor people were able to break off uh, Section 8 housing and welfare from the state. And the workers were able to break off uh, with their unions, like a certain set of rules of, um, and this is all in Moldbug. This is all the Moldbug was talking about with entropy increasing. All of these things paralyze the machinations of the state and they, they, uh, use up the state's like financial resources. So then all these people have their own agenda and it just paralyzes the state. So the Caesar comes to like reign on top of that. And I kind of got a little bit off the topic. My point is accelerationism uh, recognizes that we're going through these different phases and you don't go backwards in these phases. I mean, Nick Land says this all much more explicitly than, than Moldbug does. You can't like, back out of modernity back into aristocracy it's like not how history works so accelerationism says that like it's not that we want things to go faster it's that we recognize that things are going faster and that perhaps what they're going to culminate in is this caesar figure is this ceo monarch um and I actually sort of lost the point of why I was explaining all that. But I wanted – I saw a Spurgler in here and I – oh, yeah, the Caesar. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So here's the question I want to ask everybody because I said this at the very beginning. Um, and we'll let, we'll let Spurgler answer first. But I want to hear from anybody who's willing to, to, to contribute here. The thing that I said in the beginning for why I adhere to Moldbug so much is because my perspective on history is that – 
the future is not this wide open horizon of like limitless possibilities. My perspective on history is that as time goes by, the number of possibilities is decreased and things can only end up and turn out one of like a very limited number of ways. Whatever we get for the future, it's it's ridiculous to study history and think that we're just going to have like actual democracy forever. I think democracy is over. But the idea that we're going to go on and have like actual democracy where people's votes actually matter is insane. I mean, anyone who tells you that should be disregarded immediately. Um, so are we cycling through like the cycles of history and into oligarchy? Now, if you think about it, I'm being very long winded, so I'll shut up after this. <clears throat> One of the examples Moldbug gives of like what the CEO monarch might look like or how he might act is FDR. And he brings up FDR often to say that, like, look, I'm not crazy. I'm not making I'm not pulling shit up out of my ass. What I'm talking about has already happened. And the thing about FDR is that uh, he was preceded by another oligarchic phase. Um, you know, the, the golden age. And it was uh, the, the mineral, uh, the people who like were like mineral magnates and oil magnates. And um, uh, I can't remember who it was. I think it was the Rockefellers were like big into iron. Okay, I'm now forgetting Carnegie Rockefeller. One of them was big in oil. One of them was big in iron. And then there was a bunch of other like mineral magnates who were like huge, powerful oligarchs. And uh, Teddy Roosevelt basically like broke them up and smashed them. And what that tells you, right, if the state comes along and is able to break up the oligarchs, what that means is that the state is still this is accelerationism. The state is still too powerful to be taken over by these individuals. Now, you could say that these individuals were kind of like dissipated and dissolved and like taken up by the framework of the state. But this is accounted for in accelerationism like this is what an apparatus of capture does the state is an apparatus of capture and it doesn't just like take these like super rich oligarchs and stuff and just like kill them and take their money and appropriate their money unto itself that's what a caesar does a caesar will expropriate the, that's what putin did they will expropriate that they will smash an oligarch and expropriate his wealth for the state that's what a, that's what a monarch acts like but uh but a state doesn't do that. They like absorb them into themselves. So then you end up seeing like Rockefellers becoming like really powerful governors of New York. Well, no matter how powerful of a governor you, you are as a governor of New York, you're still not like the supreme leader of America. You know what I'm saying? And then we saw recently uh, some of like Teddy Roosevelt's um, family members like capitulating to the wokeness and like allowing his statue to be taken down in New York City. So we're seeing this apparatus of capture of the state, the progressive ideology, which is supposedly bigger than the machinations of the state, like the consuming everything like this big blob. Um, so the question is, is like, will some individual figure come along and be charismatic and powerful and strong enough to like override all of that? And take the state and direct it towards his own will. Now, I don't think Gavin McGinnis, uh, Gavin McGinnis, I can't believe I just said that. Gavin Newsom is an example of someone who's going to be a Caesar. Michael Anton says he's not going to be a Caesar, right? Because the left can't have a Caesar because uh, the left will constantly want to, this goes back to what I was saying before. 
will constantly want a, a leader to appeal to like the most marginalized fringe group. Like intersectionality defines their the way they relate to the state. So like if you don't enfranchise like the most crippled, fattest, tranny, black, uh, Indian, Native American person you can find then they will tear you down and they don't want you. And if you do cater to that person, they're going to find somebody who's even more marginalized. That's what Anton's argument for why you can't have a blue Caesar right now. I don't agree with that argument at all. I think the left would probably be satisfied by a Caesar who throws parties for all those people and smashes and, and kills their enemies and, you know, hangs Kyle Rittenhouse from a bridge and, uh, uh, I, I don't know, like allows like abortion doctors in drag to like beat white straight men to death with high heels in the streets. They probably would be happy and just let anybody be their Caesar. The reason why Gavin Newsom can't be the Caesar, in my opinion, is because he is totally like the same like uh, Macron in France. These guys are not megalomaniacal uh independent businessman out for their own aggrandizement they are like total technocratic tools of the state so these are not the types of people that will become the ceo monarch um so spurgler i brought you in and then i just talked over you nonstop. so please uh pick that up if you if you'd like yeah no worries so first of all great space guys uh kudos to all of you for doing all this and i definitely hear you know, the echoes of Spangler and what you've said about Moldbug. But first, I, I do have to confess that I put all of my autism hours in people like Nietzsche and Spangler. So I haven't had the pleasure to read Moldbug yet, but hopefully uh, sometimes soon I'll get to it. But yeah, regard- make, to make clear that the, the CEO monarch and the Spanglerian Caesar figure are basically the same thing. I, I want to make it clear that having not read Moldbug, is not does not like negate your perspective on this. I'm sorry to keep talking over you. Go ahead. No, no, no worries. Yeah, I was just going to say it, it sounds like there's like a, a lot of overlap there. You know, one thing that I would point out um, is because I'm just not sure exactly what Moldbug says on this matter uh, is kind of like the, the basis of authority that the CEO monarch has. You know, if you think of a traditional monarch, at least in the West, our conception of it was this great chain of being that there was something about the clergy and God that uh, kind of abrogated power to the monarch to rule that, you know, his rule was legitimated uh, through God. And this is only possible in such a religious era. And, you know, there might be parallels between a monarch and a Caesar figure, but, you know, this is just because they're both very, you know, authoritarian in a lot of ways. But the the basis of their authority is completely different for the, uh, the traditional springtime monarch uh, it's religious, while for the, the wintry Caesar figure, it's uh, based in populism, uh, a private military, and uh, you know inordinate wealth, those sorts of uh, civilizational factors versus the early springtime cultural factors. And one thing I, I would just say, I mean, it seems like uh, if, if you're just talking about whether or not the, uh, the Caesarist figure will emerge, I actually think it's you know, more likely in a lot of ways than a quote unquote CEO monarch. Um, I'm, I'm not exactly sure, you know, which way uh, Moldbug takes it, but uh, one of the things that Schopenhauer says, and I think this is so true, is that uh, a, a republic is very easy to establish, but it's extremely hard to maintain. While a monarchy is, is extremely difficult to establish, but it's rather easy to maintain. Uh, it should be pretty clear, you know, through revolution, a republic is very easy to set up. 
But uh, it's very hard to maintain it because the same turbulent forces that brought it in will plague it for the rest of its life. Well, a monarchy is extremely difficult because you have to convince everybody that this one guy or this one family is superior and that everyone has to kind of uh, concede some sovereignty to him. But uh, once you manage it, you know, like somebody was saying, I think it was Bones, you know, there's something very natural about this uh, arrangement uh, and people kind of naturally gravitate toward it. And I mean, it's pretty obvious that throughout human history, there's been a whole lot more uh, monarchies and things of that nature rather than republics. So I, I do give some credence to that argument. Now, one thing I want to say and put in here for people to kind of mull over is, you know, for, for Spangler, a lot of these are historical problems. But w- uh, what I'm appreciating about Moldbug is because he's talking about our situation today, uh, these same Spanglerian problems of history for us are different. For us, these are political problems. And one thing I would say is how do you get people to buy into this idea of, of monarchy? And I'm just going to give a very quick historical example, and then I'll, I'll stop talking here. Now, if you think about the transition to Caesarism in the Roman Republic, because that's probably the single case that we have the most information data on, so it's pretty good for that. So after all the civil wars with uh, Julius Caesar, as he uh, kind of defeated Pompey and then kind of cleaned up a lot of uh, the Roman world after Pompey, actually, but uh, eventually he, he gets back to Rome. He has his triumphs and uh, life's looking good. He's you know dictator for life. Now he and Mark Antony, they pulled this little stunt, okay? They're out in public. I forget the exact uh, you know reason for them being out in public, but they're out in public before a large Roman crowd. And Mark Antony tries to do something. What he does is he offers Caesar a crown. And if you know anything about the Romans, they're extremely, uh, you know, anti-Rex, anti-King. They absolutely hate the idea of monarchy. This goes back to their founding, just, uh, you know, in the same way uh, this is the case for the Americans. You know, our founding is very much anti-monarchic. And you have to consider the Romans were seeing this, and then all of a sudden they realized, they made that connection. Like, oh my goodness, Julius Caesar has killed all of his political opponents, and he's making a bid uh, you know, for one man rule, for really monarchy. And as soon as Mark Antony, you know, did this little ploy, it was immediately unpopular. The crowd started booing. They got in, a, you know, a real tissy. They were extremely upset. And Caesar had a big show of rejecting the crown. Uh, you know, I think what happened there is obviously two possibilities. Either he was testing the waters and getting ready to declare some sort of monarchy, which is very possible, or, or second, he was just trying to make a big show of the fact that he would never accept the crown and that he was never going to be a monarch and that he was actually some sort of uh, restorer of the Republic. And you have to think about that. This goes back to what I said about Schopenhauer, right? Uh, A Republic is easy to establish, but hard to maintain. And a monarchy is hard to establish, but easy to maintain. Uh, Establishing a monarchy or, you know, the Caesar event is not going to be easy. You have to, you know, it's kind of like a It's like a PR issue. How do you actually market it for people and make it some sort of uh, viable and, you know, salient uh, political option? And, you know, that's one thing that I think people need to talk about. Like, you know, if you if you adopt this language of uh, the CEO monarch or monarchy in general, I guess that's fine for just a bunch of people on the Internet. And we're just theorizing here. And, uh, you know, that's just like the facility of the, the language and the term there. But uh, it's an actual marketing issue that you have to you have to consider there. So th- that's my thoughts on the the issue. No, this is great. Um, later in 
the essay, and we're going to have at least two more episodes on this. He explains like how the whole thing would happen, like in his mind, and he 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 like games a scenario. And it basically, this is why I think Moldbug is an accelerationist, even though he doesn't call himself an accelerationist, is <clears throat> because when he games like the scenario in um, the open letter, he basically says that like the state will go bankrupt. And then uh, they'll get bailed out of the, the bankruptcy. They'll get bailed out of bankruptcy. And then they'll be in debt to like this board of directors and the CEO monarch. And he'll he'll take control. And uh, this is basically what was I? Where was I going with this? This is basically. Um, uh, I forgot where I was going with this. I'm starting to fade. Damn it. I'm going to let uh, Taurus come in and, and remember what I just said about the state going bankrupt because I'm going to. Figure that out and come back with it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I, so I'm thinking about really this, this exact same issue, like uh, in, in the question of legitimacy that Sproger was bringing up. And, you know, in a transition like this, you know, it almost honestly sounds a little naive to me to think you could really have an entirely secular monarch in terms of this uh the development of this legitimacy and uh, and uh, you know think of secular in the broadest term there i mean when i imply that it may require some kind of religious function or an uh, authentication i i mean this can be again religion in the very broadest of senses but there's going like one way i think about this like where so if power is highly concentrated in a monarch, so is symbolism always in history. Like, it's almost like this, um, you know, it's almost like this, uh, yeah, it's like this concentration. Uh, how, how can you possibly have power like that concentrated in one person? And yeah. Everyone feel at least at some, something like at home in that country in them not somewhere like deep in their heart kind of having a certain kind of love for this person i mean there's got to be that component and that's what i don't quite understand about mold bug is like all of this is so futuristic and and cold it's like how does this person actually become the father of the nation okay this is an excellent observation and this is one of Moldbug's biggest, probably in my mind, his biggest miss. This is something missing from Moldbug, as far as I can tell. That he needs to, he needs to incorporate, or at least we, we need to incorporate it because I don't think what he imagines can work without it. Uh, it's accounted for in Spangler. He talks about emperor worship. That basically, there's like a proliferation of cults. <coughs> excuse me, during the breakdown of order. And during all this chaos I'm describing about all these different special interest groups wanting um, uh, to, 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 to have the state enfranchise them based on their special interest groups, that brings paralysis. At the same time, uh, these people, right, they, they also don't have uniformity of religious beliefs. So all these different cults are springing up. Uh, this is very worthy of going into in depth, but I won't right now. The point being is that all of this uh, frenetic religious uh, fervor gets sort of displaced off of whatever like 
crazy cult they have and gets placed back on the emperor. And part of it is the emperor forces that the, the emperor um, kind of makes them do that. But part of it is also like he, he, he like integrates it into law that you have to worship the emperor. But part of it is because the people venerate the emperor so much and, and they do adore him. And of course, this is um, in Machiavelli, right? That the demagogue is like loved and adored by the people and he feeds into that. He feeds into that adoration and law to, to, to use them as a force to fight against his political enemies, their love for him, their fervor for him. Now, um, what I was saying before that I kind of got tripped up on myself is that accelerationism is basically the idea that like the state is quite clearly running itself into the ground. And if it's still too powerful for a, a true oligarch to emerge and take over, you don't want them to try. You want the state to keep doing its bullshit so that it will drive itself into the ground. This is why I think Moldbug said he wanted uh, jo Joe Biden to win in 2020. Because look what's happening right now. Right now, the state, if you look at Joe Biden's cabinet and all the people, you see like these videos on Twitter of like these like judges and these senators being like sworn in. I mean, we have a fucking stroke victim who's like been in the hospital for months or weeks or whatever, who's like a, a senator. You have uh, you have Sonia Sotomayor not knowing the difference between de facto and de jure. Uh, you have Pete Buttigieg like talking about like trans lives matter. He's like being met with like, uh, a blonde uh he's being met with uh, uh what is <laughs> i can't think of the name of uh, yakub he's like get, getting being met with like a female uh yakub like telling him that he needs to like get uh racism out of like uh transportation infrastructure so this is basically us watching the state like bankrupt itself and collapsing by 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 servicing woke progressive ideology to its logical conclusion, which means by putting these bioleninist people in power, they're going to just like totally collapse the state and bring it down, right? And then that's where the 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 CEO monarch emerges. Now, uh, Taurus is absolutely correct. The problem with Moldbug is that he sees it as this like technocratic thing where these like businessmen are basically appealed to by Washington, who are like, hey, oh my God, we're like we're bankrupt and we can't run the state. We need to borrow your money tech CEO billionaire. And the tech CEO billionaires basically take over the state at that point And they run the state. And it's like, this is, this is, this is how the Greek democracy was set up. They were like, if there's a crisis and democracy can't fix the crisis, we can, we can uh, implement a tyrant for a year. And then that person has uh, dictatorial control for a year and then they have to step down. This is basically what Moldbug predicts or like wants to have happen. He wants this like board of directors and the CEO to be given power by the state for like a year because the state can't run its business and they don't have the money. And then uh, they just end up staying there and like running the state. But the way I think it would really happen is more as like, look at Donald Trump. In my opinion, Donald Trump had all of the ingredients there to become the Caesar figure. He was loved and adored by his people. He said he could shoot somebody on Madison Avenue in the middle of the day and his people wouldn't leave him, which was probably true. He said that the police and the military were on his side, which was probably true. But he didn't step up. Like he, I don't think he really wanted to go all the way. I don't think he really wanted that. I think what Trump got was enough for him. I think the reason why Trump didn't become the guy we want him to be is because what he got was enough for him, in my opinion. What we need is somebody 
that has the love of the people like Trump did and he has the fame because Trump really could have done whatever he wanted and people would have backed him. We need somebody who has the love of the people like that, who also isn't satisfied with just being president, with just being famous. He wants to be dictator for life. It's like the only thing that's going to make it. So we need all of these ingredients to be in place uh, for this person to emerge and take power. And an accelerationist is like, well, if that's what we want to have happen, it's not going to have it's not going to happen unless the state continues to drive itself into the ground. So therefore. As an accelerationist, I want the state to keep maintaining power and doing exactly what it's doing right now, only more because it's going to end in disaster and someone uh, is going to take over. This counter elite is going to emerge and take over at some point. Uh, Appalachian, New Age, and then Necro. Yeah, so you you kind of touched on what I was going to say, but it it seems to me that – Moldbug's admonition for us to wait is is really in line with uh, you know Spenglerian uh, accelerationism uh, for sure, and I definitely see that in his writing. Um, it, the the other thing, um, and to, to go back a little bit, that I wanted to um, to ask to uh, to Taurus or, or anyone else who can speak on this, um, but as far as a uh, you know a leader needing to be there needed to be a religious component to their rule. Um, I'm sympathetic to that idea. I'm not totally against it. Um, but one of the, one of the things that, that sort of gives me pause with regards to that is, um, the basically people like, uh, like Assad, you know, I, I, I definitely see, um, in the middle East, a lot of like secularism as an secularist, uh, autocracy as an alternative to a more distributed religious rule. So um, any, anyone who, uh, I don't really have any thoughts on that. It's just something, you know, I've noticed. And I'm curious if anyone who feels that we would need to have a religious component to um, as Caesarism could speak to that. So, yeah. Uh, go ahead. New Age, Necro, and then Rex. All right. Um, so I was kind of comparing he, uh, Molebugs, how he went from kind of really talking about the CEO to more of a Caesar figure um, kind of in my view of it is the CEO monarch would be kind of his end goal or his idea ideal. Um, and it, at the time of writing you uh, are, it was very, he was appealing to spurgy libertarians that really come from a hopper train. Um, so he could really get them on board. And then also he also talks a lot about Carlisle. Carlisle was also known to appeal. He called to the Titans of industry of his day to take over and run as 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 a new aristocracy in in his day. Um, now, trying to sell it to normies, um, he's kind of transitioned to the Caesar talk or Napoleon talk, and he really stresses that this is embedded in the presidency um, already. And he brings up um, FDR specifically because FDR, like he said, ruled for life. Uh, he died in office and everything. Um, but and this also dovetails with the book that. I brought up in the group chat, the Royalist Revolution uh, by Eric Nelson. He's a Harvard guy. Um, And Nelson's whole thing was he talks about uh, a certain um, Federalists during the revolutionary period, such as John Adams. John Adams, of which uh, Mulbug says is is his favorite founding father, and he says the one whose thought holds up the 
the most. And also during you are reading it through here, Moldbug calls himself a Jacobite. And in this book, Nelson argues that this Federalist branch, Adams, Hamilton, James Wilson, the people who uh, crafted the office of the presidency, um, they were in their arguments leading up to the revolution, they were calling for King George III to take up the old Jacobite uh, prerogative powers of the king. And um, just closing out here, I was going to do just read a little little uh, couple sentences from that book. Um, and he calls it the Royalist Revolution. Um, but here near the end, he says, the ambition of the Royalist Revolution had been to secure the liberty of subjects and citizens by entrusting their care to a transcendent chief magistrate one who would stand above faction and resist the tyrannical encroachments and usurpations of legislatures. When King George III refused to play this role, the theorists in question had set about creating his replacement, and Adams believed that they had succeeded, at least in this round. The presidency, as he wrote to Washington in, early, in the early months of 1789, said, by its legal authority defined in the Constitution, the presidency has no equal in the world, excepting those which are held by crowned heads, nor is the royal authority in all cases to be compared to it. Um, so I, I don't know if Moldbug is aware of this, um, but this also speaks to, in that quote there, he'd seen above faction, Moldbug is very much trying to diffuse the culture wars with the Caesar-like figure. Um, but that's all I have. No, those are excellent points, and thank you for bringing it back to the text and the, the people Mulbug references. That's exactly right. That's exactly right, and one of the arguments for why a Caesar is going to actually be able to uh, garner the admiration and the support of the people is that regular people, you're seeing this now, what's supposed to happen, and this happened with Caesar, is that regular people who are not really politically engaged in times gone by are now forced to be engaged in politics because their like regular normal lives are being disturbed either by their having their land appropriated from themselves from them uh by, by forces beyond their control or they're being shut out of the democratic processes or they're not being given access they're being asked by the state to do things without having like uh the the reciprocal relationship of being enfranchised being able to vote and things like that these things cause uh, wars, like decades of wars in Rome. And by the time Caesar comes along, like people who normally just wanted to be farmers, who are now forced to like be in the city of Rome, like clamoring outside of the Senate, like trying to get the senators to like pay attention to their needs when they normally never would have like been politically engaged. Caesar comes along and they're like, hey, like. Yeah, you take power and just, like, give us everything we want and get these people out of here. Uh, so now normal people whose children are being, like, sodomized at school and, like, b by adult men in, in clown suits and satanic dresses and uh, their, their children are being, like, exposed to, like, pedophiles in, in, in drag in, like, bars and shit, like, who normally wouldn't care about this stuff. Um, they're the type of people that will go on to support a Caesar who will like stop the madness. You know what I mean? So, um, and, and there's a lot to be said. It's, it's too late and I've been talking too much. I'm hogging the mic. There's a lot to be said about uh, what you brought up about Jacobites because in their time they were watching the monarchy actively crumble and actively be like torn down and losing power and being, um, <coughs> 
<laughs> subjugated and uh, subject to like parliament and like the political processes are 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 uh, ascendant in their time. So they're watching all that stuff happen, and they wanna they wanna re uh, reassert the crown, and they want the crown to reassert itself. But obviously, that didn't happen. And Moldbug talks a lot about like the interplay between parliament and the king, and he basically says that like you can't have both. It's it's one or the other. Oh, uh, and so at that time it was parliament. Uh, so now to be a Jacobite is like, you know, he's kind of like a hipster political ideology to have, but, but anyway, that's what that stuff is about. Necro, go ahead. Um, I'm starting to, to, to fade a little bit cause it's past 4am here. Um, I really enjoyed the space. Um, I like this, really like this discussion on monarchy and Caesar, um, and I hope we'll get back to it in another one. Uh, for now, I just had something I wanted to bring up that is uh, specific to these initial chapters. And it is a little related to what we were talking about, uh, sovereignty, and that is corner man. Um, and I can talk about that now or I can just sort of uh, step aside and let can, let the conversation go as it will. Um, no, if you're going to go, you should definitely end on that because I meant to bring him up in the beginning and we got so sidetracked. I forgot all about corner man. I definitely corner bring man. up corner man. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So um, I would like to preface this by saying that anyone who's listening and has not read Mulbug uh, absolutely should. And the open letter is a great place to uh, start because firstly, it's really is a foundational text of uh, the, the new right Um uh, but also because it is actually quite accessible. Um, he wrote it as a series of blogs, and um, it's while it's verbose, it is actually it is um, easy enough to understand. And it's actually pretty funny, and he uses humor, uh, in my opinion, brilliantly to illustrate rhetorical points. And I think the best example of that is Cornerman. Uh, so Cornerman is a video i don't know how he found this video uh it might have been divine providence like putting this in front of him but corner man is a video of some black crackhead uh in i think la um who is rants to the corner about how he owns his corner this corner's mine this corner's mine um and he just goes apeshit and then a car like pulls up alongside his corner and he pulls a crowbar out from underneath a bin and starts bashing in the windows of this car to defend his territory. And it is it's hilarious. And Molberg uses this both um, to discuss sovereignty, but also to represent chaos. Um, um, because, because if Corner Man rules his corner, then he rules it um, with uh, arbitrary violence and chaos. And um, he uses this so well to, to discuss these matters. And I actually have a uh, section to read, which I also think is a great summary of his thought as he has put it so far in these early stages of the book. So this is... Um, uh, so uh, Cornerman is... Uh, I can't remember which 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 chapter he links the video, uh, but this discussion I think it might be chapter one actually, um, the very very first chapter. Uh, but this section is 
uh, uh, towards the beginning of chapter three, a Jacobite history of the world. Let's start with the obvious. A reactionary, i.e. a right winger, is someone who believes in order, stability and security, all of which he treats as synonyms. Think as a progressive about the simplicity of this proposition. It is so stupid as to be almost mindless. What is the purpose of government? Why do we have government rather than nothing? Because the alternative is corner man. Note that corner man has his own philosophy of government. He exercises sovereignty. That's his corner. Metro can't even get me off his motherfucking corner. Indeed, as much as the relationship, he has much the same relationship to the government that you and I know and love uh, that Henry VIII had to the Pope. And how did he acquire this corner? I've been on this motherfucking corner for 10 motherfucking years. In legal theory, this is called adverse possession, which is more or less how the Tudors acquired their little island. Of course, we reactionaries are not fans of corner man, largely because his claim to the corner is contested by a superior authority which will prevail in any serious conflict. Why does he attack the blue PT cruiser? Is it because he's on crack? Perhaps. But perhaps it's also because the driver owes allegiance to the other side of the conflict, Metro, and neither has nor would acknowledge corner man's authority. For example, he has not paid him any taxes, fees, or rents for the privilege of positioning her vehicle on this so-called territory. One synonym for reactionary is legitimist. When the legitimist asks whether the corner man really owns his corner, he is not asking whether the corner man should own his corner. He's asking where the corner man does own his corner. And his answer is no. He prefers the claim of Metro not or not just because Metro is not in the habit of getting loaded and bashing the holy heck out of random people's cars, but because Metro and corner man have conflicting claims. And in the end, the former is almost certain to win. And when he asks whether the Bourbons are the legitimate rulers of France or the Stuarts of England, he's not asking whether A, the Bourbon or Stuart family has some hereditary biological property that makes their science ideal for the job, midichlorians perhaps, or b, the Bourbon or Stuart will suffer intolerably as a result of being deprived of the throne, or even c, the Bourbon or Stuart families obtain their original claims fairly and squarely, at least not if he has any sense. None of these arguments is even close to viable. Thus, the order that the rational reactionary seeks to preserve and or restore is arbitrary. Perhaps it can be justified on some moral basis, but probably not. It is good simply because it is order, and the alternative to order is violence at worst and politics at best. If the Bourbons do not rule France, someone will. Robespierre or Napoleon or Cornerman. And that is the end of my passage. That's great. That was a good, that was a good read. Um, yeah, you know, I talked in the beginning about like running the gambit of like left, liber- uh, left anarchism to like, I don't want to call it right anarchism. Uh, excuse me. Yeah, yeah, no, sorry. Right, left anarchism to libertarianism, uh, and like ANCAP, which is like anarcho capitalism, which is like kind of what Moldbug is in a way. I mean, there's, there's crossover anyway, but part of the reason why Moldbug appealed to me so much. And part of the reason why I ended up here on the right is because my opinion is that any 
honest person who thinks anarchism through to the end, they're going to end in some sort of tyranny. Anarchism will, chaos of anarchism will result in uh, the strongest basically taking over, or it will end in like this sort of like feudalism where corner man uh, is like stronger and more, uh, you know, vicious and brutal than his neighbors. So he becomes the new leader, which of course you don't want that. Nobody wants that. So it's, it's, it makes so much sense for a guy like me who was like reading like von Mises and Hayek in like 2009 because of the 2008 crisis um, and trying to like figure out like, okay, where does my like, where do my political proclivities live? Like for them to end up with Moldbug makes so much sense because what he, that passage you just read is sort of like the process my mind went through where I was like, wow, this will end in some sort of like violent tyranny so the best thing to do would be to have like a nonviolent tyrant take over and impose strict order. So like the logical conclusion of anarchism is strict order, which is like why libertarians are stupid and full of shit and not worth your time because they don't understand. They're too dim to grasp the fact that their ideology eventually leads to like this sort of tyranny. And it's Moldbug realizing that it like it, this is how it like uh, spins out in the end, and this is like the best possible uh, way for it to go with causing the least amount of harm, the least amount of disruption. Uh, so that's why he r- resonated with me so much. Uh, so Rex had his hand up first. I know Ace was here earlier, and I thought he left, but he was in the audience. Uh, so Ace, uh, glad glad you stuck around. Uh, Rex, go ahead first, just because your hand's been up longer, and then Ace. Yeah, I don't really have a ton to say, um, but uh, I did get the book. I still haven't opened it yet. Um, somebody mentioned a club uh, earlier, reading club I'm kind of curious about. Um, I'm currently listening, not reading, to... Um, to the decline of the West. Um, and uh, it's, it's tough, but it's like the beginning, the beginning of, uh, man, the second chapter about, uh, the, you know, hist- where he ties together a history of, you know, science and, and art and, um, and, and stuff in such a way that, like, I never, you know, I, I thought I would, I thought nobody was on that level, you know, cause I was thinking about that kind of, I was thinking about kind of the, how the history of art and like math and the Vienna circle and like, like, you know, that these things that were happening in the world of, of, of logic and, um, and so on. I, I saw connections between these things, learning about them in, in history and school and whatnot. And I never thought I'd actually see them like laid out and parallelized in a book, which was amazing. Um, but it's, it's a super hard, um, listen i'm sure it'd be a little easier to read it uh but i'm a little bit too uh scatterbrained to to do that right now um anyway i do want to listen to this uh, and i'm super curious about this club thing that was mentioned um something something kind of interesting that occurred to me uh evola you know somebody i think uh astral mentioned the right the right wing um kind of being you know internalizing the kind of poisonous 
perspective of d- democratic ideals. But I think that might've been there since, you know, might've been there from the start. Um, you know, not that I'm, I'm not a huge history buff, but it seems like Cromwell and like radical Republicans of, of their day were like the, you know, original, some of the original left, you know, revolutionaries almost. Um, but Evola says, I think it was metaphysics of war or maybe in Ride the Tiger, he says something about, you know, waging is something that you, you get, uh, you can accomplish with war and waging war is that you're not only fighting, you know, the false idols and, and beliefs of your enemies, but you're also, you know, snuffing them out in yourself at the same time. So, um, that's uh, an interesting perspective to keep. I think like we can improve our own side through the, through whatever struggle we end up, uh, you know, taking uh, ahead. And that's all I got. But uh, if somebody wants to tell me the, the book uh, club thing, like, you know, message me or whatever, I'm kind of kind of curious about it. Yeah. So that's a Vola telling you to take the red pill. Uh, maybe he invented the idea. As far as book club goes, um, the one that I started is full, but I, if I'm, I'm willing to start a second one, a spillover one, if I get enough DM. So just send me a DM if you, if you're interested, <clears throat> and I'll start a second one. Um, Spengler came up a lot. I talked about Spengler a lot. For anybody here who's read Moldbug and you actually have time to read a thousand-page book that, on world history. I highly recommend Decline of the West, not just because it's good on its own merits, but also because you you will see when you finish that, you will see that like Moldbug is definitely uh, like patterning his like trajectory of where America's going on Spengler's model for the morphology of history. Uh, go ahead, Ace. So, so Spengler is, is, is definitely relevant to, to Moldbug. Thank you. Um, I guess this has more to do with the travel of information that Moldbug kind of set out. Um, obviously, millennials have a better memory than me. I'm a Zoomer. But is it just me or did uh, because people like Nick Land and Moldbug were not uh, pundits in the conventional sense on the right, uh, it seemed like a lot of that information, the unqualified reservations and so on, that seemed to kind of seep into the, I guess, what is called broadly the dissonant right and kind of hibernated towards uh, some of the British commentators. I don't know, like people like Academic Agent, I know kind of inherited a lot of the Italian elite theory and a lot of the anti-democracy talk that I see in uh, outlets like I Am 1776. So I don't know if that was uh, like an intentional change. What do you call that? Uh, Carrying the torch from one camp to the other. Um I don't know if you see that as a success or kind of uh, because it's a decentralized like information one camp to the other. If uh, if you see that as uh, like a proper arc, if we want to call it that for the NRX, uh, I know as a zoomer, like I, I missed the boat. You know, I was uh, not politically active when uh, this thing first dropped, but maybe some of the publishing is supposed to get people to catch up. And then uh, because you mentioned Spangler, I was curious if you think Moldbug would agree with that uh, tweet that Spurgler posted earlier today, the the mid-century German Contra Spangler commentary, since that would be a, 
uh, maybe a more underreported aspect of uh, that era and that type of a figure. But I'm not too sure because I haven't really read much of Moldbug's uh, takes on that that era. That's a great – your first question is a great question, a great observation, something worth talking about um, because, like, the, the – the the bigger pundits it's a good word to use for what these people are on the right i don't know if i mean academic agent seems to be pretty like uh he doesn't well he doesn't seem to be majorly conservative either like he doesn't seem to be somebody who pushes like traditional christian morality no (laughs) he doesn't seem like a trad basically he calls himself like a like an Evolian type traditionalist, like a modernist traditionalist, which is probably okay. not, <laughs> should probably come up with a better label, but that's, that's last I heard. That's his, uh, because you're observing that a lot of these people have taken up mode bugs, like, uh, lingo yes. and it, his lingo has just like permeated the right, but it's probably used and his concepts are understood by guys who probably disagree with him. Uh, on this question of uh, conservatism and traditionalism, um, you know, Moldbug catches a lot of flack. People people hate on him a lot because of that. And I think people who probably take up his language, uh, I mean, he even talks about this, how how disparate groups use the term red pill. And a lot of these people probably don't even know that Moldbug like, kind of popularized it. And a lot of them probably are very opposed to like what Moldbug stands for. So it's an interesting, uh, I, I, I would love to see like a debate. He doesn't seem to be super interested in debating people on the right. And I can kind of understand why, but I think it would be like really, really interesting if he debated like somebody who's really smart, um, about traditionalism versus like accelerationism, even though again, Moldbug doesn't use that term, but it's just my opinion that, that the trad thing is just the ship has sailed, unfortunately. And, um, the best thing you can do as a trad is like build a strong community built on traditional values while the empire itself, like crumbles and spirals into whatever it's going to crumble and spiral into. <clears throat> and then the other thing you said about, uh, Spurgler's quote there, this is another thing that could be like its own, its own space. But like the fact that the Nazis, use the people uh, and use democracy as a way to like ride to power. And then, you know, once they got into power, they were pretty popular. You can't really deny that. Uh, And, you know, I I mean, I guess I'm repeating something I already said, but I'll finish the thought, which is that Moldbug basically says this is how his like thing should come into power or into play. But he also denounces the Nazis, so I would I'd be interested to hear what he thinks about that because it's like you can be against democracy, right? I'm against democracy. I've always been against democracy. It's just from different perspectives. I've been against democracy since I was old enough to like think about politics since I was like 18. Uh, but Trump, more than anybody else, proved to me that you could use democracy to uh, negate democracy. Right. Because he was voted in. He's and and he was <clears throat> I mean, he's a really great example. Because not only was he voted in, but he didn't win the popular vote. So they were able to, like, 
use the system in the most sophisticated way possible, that he still legally was able to enter the presidency through the vote, even though he didn't get the popular vote. They like gamed the electoral college. Uh, so, so that's a really excellent example of how these things could come to pass. Uh, does Moldbug still wear the leather jacket? Because if he doesn't, I'm going to have to counter signal just on principle. But, you know, I would, I hope we can get that message to him directly. Like, you're fucking up. You're dis- disappointing your fans. And I don't even know if you can really deserve to be the thought leader if you don't keep rocking the leather jacket. We can find this out. He's been in public in the last uh, six months. Actually, Adrian might have seen him in New York. Adrian, was he rocking the leather jacket? I have. He was not rocking the leather jacket. He was wearing an elegant scarf. It's over. It's fucking over. Kind of like a sweater sort of thing. You know, he's, he's gotten like a little bit, I think, New York elitist the more he hangs out in Dime Square. And I would prefer, and I think Ace would, would agree with me, that he go back to his rock and roll leather jacket roots. Ah, fuck, I forgot. I've seen you two in a space together. It turns into a leather jacket discussion when you guys real. get together. No, it, this is truly the decline of the West, if what you're saying is real testimony. So that's disappointing. Well, listen, guys, I might have to end it here. But um, on the one hand, we didn't get to a lot of stuff I wanted to talk about. But on the other hand, this is just the first of at least two more um, we didn't talk about the cathedral. This is the this is the book he lays out the argument of the cathedral. So I think next time we should probably focus on the cathedral. And um, you know, uh, repeating myself yet again, I'm a fan of Moldbug. I follow Moldbug. I do not think Moldbug is above criticism at all. And I think it would be great, great fodder for an argument about whether or not. Uh, this thing that he calls the cathedral should really be called the synagogue. Um, And also his description of the cathedral brings up Noam Chomsky's manufacturing consent. Uh, So we can talk about, you know, I made a tweet. I thought it was going to blow up. I don't know what I did wrong. I thought it was going to be a big tweet. I made a, I made a tweet about uh, Chomsky being controlled opposition that um, it's reasonable to at least look at Chomsky as being controlled opposition uh, either knowingly on his part or sort of a a useful idiot who helps uh, carry water for the regime under the guise of uh, radical dissidents. And, you know, Chomsky is another person that made me realize anarchism was was, uh, a fool's errand because uh, Chomsky so grossly misunderstands human nature and i think the i think the foundations of anarchism misunderstands human nature i just liked it because i don't like authority i don't like our rulers i think the people who lord over us are illegitimate and and i didn't want to adhere to any political ideology that like supported any of them and i also have always hated communism even when i was on the left i said in the beginning i was a left anarchist like, even then, I hated communism because it's so authoritarian. Uh, Chomsky has, like, a fundamental misunderstanding of human nature baked into his perspective, which, if the guy is really a genius, uh, then that means he knows better and that he is controlled opposition. Or he's really just an idiot. I don't know. But <clears throat> the point is, the reason I'm bringing Chomsky up, I don't mean to get sidetracked here, 
is that his concept, uh, and he he co-wrote manufacturing concept with somebody else. I forgot his name, and they based it on Walter Lippmann, who came up with the term manufacturing consent. And uh, in his description of the cathedral, Moldbug talks about Lippmann, and he talks about manufacturing consent. And one of the questions I want you guys to think about is uh, the manufacturing consent cathedral idea is that like these things sort of just happen because of the zeitgeist, because of the progressive zeitgeist that everybody sort of like thinks the same, that they're uh, like automatons reinforcing their own power. So the reason why there's uniformity in the universities and in the media is because all these people know that if they genuflect to the altar of progressivism, it will consolidate their own power. It will enfranchise themselves and their friends. Uh, and the question I have is if uh, Chomsky knows better and he's just obfuscating what's really going on in the media. Um, I don't think Moldbug is controlled opposition. So the question is, is Moldbug missing what's really going on in the media and my, my argument is that the media is state propaganda now uh and the heavy hand of the state is like it's not uh the invisible hand of capitalism it's the iron fist of communism uh, and propaganda like asserting itself in the media so the question is, is does, does Moldbug's concept of the cathedral miss that? And is that a weakness or does it need to be updated? Or if I'm just, am I, am I just wrong? I don't know. Does the, does the cathedral need to be updated? Does, does Moldbug miss the heavy hand of the state? And is he basing it on <coughs> a concept made by somebody who's controlled opposition who wants you to believe that all this stuff is just ideology when it's really like the fucking CIA, like planting stories in the press. You know what I mean? Like Seymour Hirsch is supposedly a CIA fucking stooge. <clears throat> uh, what are their names? They, they like used to have, they used to be famous. The Watergate people There's a movie made about them. The people who broke the Watergate story, uh, were they, were they, um, just, a uh, 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 progressive, um, ideologues who oppose Nixon because he was like the outer party and they're part of the inner party? Or were they just uh, CIA stooges who were doing the work of the CIA for them to to knock out uh, somebody who wasn't going along with the program? Or were they actually CIA agents themselves? Now, you know, I don't, I'm not looking for a direct answer to that question. I'm trying to give you food for thought for this discussion. How does it all really work? Uh, go ahead, Adrian. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think there is a extremely clear or specific answer to this. And there's a lot of different ways you can take this. And I, I've had conversations with people trying to kind of focus down exactly how power works. And it's it's open, very open to interpretation. Also, the, the two journalists you were talking about were Woodward and Bernstein, uh, uh, yes, which Bob I think Woodward. also had in, Intel agency connections, both of them. Um, yeah, I mean, Woodward, completely unsurprising. Woodward is known. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Absolutely. Go on. Sorry. No problem. Um, so the, the way that I look at the at the cathedral is that the, these power networks are way more tenuous than we think they are. Uh, and things like the media and their extreme like they, they are a pillar of power in their own respect. But they work in a feedback system with intel agencies, with private business, with uh, military contractors, with 
what we keep calling the deep state with what we call like, you know, just regular surface government, Congress. And none of these systems have a total monopoly of power on the entire system. And they all kind of have emergent collective like feedback power on each other. And that's how I always interpreted the cathedral is that these systems kind of reaffirm each other's centers of power and will agree with each other's ideologies so long as everybody is benefiting from it at the same time. And it's not so much like a, a secret conspiracy where there's like a back room full of guys or like I, this is in, um, in the show C-Lab 2020 where there were the five Jew bankers in the back room. There aren't five Jew bankers in the back room. There's, there's a whole bunch of different systems that are connected in a network that agree with each other so that everyone in that elite circle benefits. I think elite circle is even going too far. It's just a network that, that uh, confirms its own biases and then continues to push the same agendas so long as everyone's benefiting. And that's how I always interpreted the cathedral. Yeah, I think that's a great summation of, of, of the cathedral as Moldbug imagines it. Of course, there's not five Jew bankers. I mean, God, that's insane. I would and never. I would never. Add, uh, one, one more thing is I don't think that Molbug is wrong in that assessment. I think he actually is extremely astute in identifying that way that power works and how it has worked for a very long time, even going back into um, like the 19th and 18th century where these systems were kind of the same. Yeah, well, these are great observations, great comments. Reminder, this is just food for thought for next time. We're going to spend the whole time on this. Um, I'm, I think I'm getting assaulted by allergies or I'm getting over a cold. I'm not sure which, but uh, I'm pretty much done. My throat can't take anymore. <coughs> I've had about 10 cough drops throughout this whole thing. They, they attack you through airwaves. <laughs> Very bad. Yes, they, they attack my throat. That's exactly right. So I'm going to end, but uh, of course, Echo Mike shows up as, uh, to speak as soon as I'm going to end. <clears throat> Is that picture in the Jumbotron real, by the way? I just want to get a clarification on yes. that. Yes, uh, my, my grandfather, he was the photographer. Yes, it's confirmed Man. real. Listen, I'm not going to talk anymore. I'm going to shut the space down in a second. I want to thank everybody for coming. This was like far surpassed my expectations i'm really glad i did this and i'm gonna just keep it going like ad infinitum
Hey, we're gonna uh, just hang out a minute because I started early and some of the people I expected aren't here. So hopefully they show up. But uh, yeah, this is the second of three discussions on the open letter for open-minded progressives. The first real blog entry from Moldbug's blog. Um, and it's like a, I don't know if you've, if you were here last week, <clears throat> it's kind of a rehash, but, um, it's a combination of like assessing the value of Moldbug's blog now, considering it's been almost 20 years. It's been, I think it came out 2007 or eight. So it's been like 15 years. So we want to see if he was right about things, if he's still worth like taking seriously, if the things he said turned out to be not just true, but like if his insight was uh, poignant enough to make him relevant. And my contention, and I definitely am interested in what people think about this, is he's... uh, like probably one of the most important thinkers of our lifetime and that the things he was saying and observing have come true in spades. And he did, he, he, he did kind of a combination of both predicting things and also, um, making things happen. Like he called for things that are, are coming, coming about. So, something I was going to save until later at the end of the conversation, but since I started early, I'll start with it because it's not in the open letter. But he definitely, like, the, the two, if, you, if you're interested in Moldbug's ideas and you want to read him, but you don't want to read everything, I would definitely suggest the two places to start are first the open letter and then um, a gentle introduction. Because the gentle introduction, I think it only came a year later. It's like a, it's like a direct follow up. It's like the two go together, and the first seems like it's building up to the second. I'm assuming that's how he did that on purpose. I don't I don't really know, but it kind of kind of works as one big book in a way. Together, they're probably I don't know. I could look it up, but together they're probably four or five hundred pages long. Just those two posts. And one of the things he talks about in the gentle introduction is building parallel institutions. And I think it's important to understand what a parallel institution is, because I think people might mistake what it is. Um, My opinion is that, like, Frog Twitter is a parallel institution, and that... uh, like Passage Press, who's who's obviously publishing uh, Moldbug, and they're kind of. Um, I, I mean, I guess I could say they're sponsoring this this space in a way. Uh, the the Passage Press and um, Lomez are promoting these spaces, and I got to go on Orrin McIntyre with Lomez to promote the space, which Orrin's always been cool to me, but I've never been on a show before. And I definitely think part of it 
was for him to help promote passage. So I felt super lucky because of that. And I'm, uh, I'm in good company here cause I'm a total spurg and I, f- I think I spurged out a little too much on the show, but, uh, you know, I guess that's what you do when you're given a chance like that. So that was cool. And Oren like clearly loves Neo reaction. Um, and I, I think passage press is like one of the most important things happening because I'm like really disillusioned with politics. I pretty much have been disillusioned with politics my entire life, but for a little while I had some optimism because of Trump and uh, like frog Twitter and BAP and all that stuff is great. But the system is just completely, it's been totally captured by progressives and totally captured by like, <laughs> like the CIA and the FBI and totally taken over. And I think regular people have probably been permanently shut out of the political process at this point. Uh, so I, when it comes to like building parallel institutions, like I don't, I don't think we're going to have like conservative universities. I don't want to get too much into this. I'm kind of just doing filler until nine o'clock. But we can definitely talk about this later in the show. But uh, I don't think you should th- think about parallel institutions as like conservative-owned universities that teach like reactionary thought or uh, you know conservative law firms that represent um, um, people like Kyle Rittenhouse pro bono. I mean, that stuff would be nice, but I don't know how realistic it is. Uh, I think a parallel institution, and I had it. You know, it's taken me years to come to see it this way, because you know, Moblog wrote that in like two thousand eight, like I said. And to see the way things are playing out, it's like no, it's not like an actual institution. Rather, it's like a, a loose network and affiliation of people who, if things were to disintegrate, would sort of be there already standing and not disintegrate, and then they become, like, the things that that do whatever it is they do. So, Passage Press, obviously, book publishing is, like, just completely in the shitter. It's just, like, not a thing anymore. I mean, book publishing was a massive cultural influence in America for a long time. And obviously in the West for arguably, I arguably they were the most novels and, and like book publishing and magazine publishing and periodicals were like the number one, most important cultural influence for like most of the 19th and 20th century. I think they got eclipsed probably by movies in Hollywood but even when that happened, they still stayed like a really important cultural force. And now you have things like Man's World and Passage Press who are just picking up the ball. They're picking up the proverbial crown in the street. And they are like, without question, like the coolest thing happening right now. And I think some like political spurgs and like hard right, like political people think that it like doesn't matter. But I've come to the conclusion that it's actually like the most important thing, which is why I've gone kind of all in for Moldbug. Uh, even though, like, I don't think, you know, I'm not like 
you know, Curtis Jarvin's awesome, obviously. And he was cool enough to come on my show. But like, there are other people that I think are like way cooler <laughs> and like just better. Like BAP is the coolest guy. BAP is the best one. And other, other much less popular, less influential people are like cooler than Moldbug. And they have like, I don't want to say better ideas, but they, they have like, uh, how do I say this? Like your average, like low follower, two, three, four, five thousand follower, a non account on Twitter who posts about politics and makes shit posts probably has like a better, like more ideal, like political perspective than Moldbug. But the thing about Moldbug, though, is that he has like a comprehensive system. That's the thing about him. Like, even guys that I put with him, like Spandrel and Nick Land, who I like a lot. And in some ways, like I like I said, like I like those guys better. Like I like Nick Land better than Moldbug in certain ways. Like he's he's way better to read. I enjoy reading him way more. But he doesn't have like a comprehensive system. Spandrel is awesome, and the guy granted me an interview for my blog and he was like one of the coolest people I've ever interviewed by far. Um, and he, we became friendly with each other, if not friends. And, uh, the dude's great, but he's kind of like a footnote to a, a very necessary footnote, like a, like an indispensable footnote to Moldbug. And this isn't like, I'm not denigrating him at all. I, I think he would agree. Um, and he's not nearly as prolific as Moldbug and his like perspective isn't as far reaching, but the point I'm trying to make is like, none of these people are as comprehensive as Moldbug. And that's why I think he's worth spending this much time talking about. Um, BAP is probably just as comprehensive, but BAP's different. And honestly, it's probably would be good to compare and contrast the two actually, because they both kind of have like. There's overlap for sure. And if you listen to Caribbean rhythms, I don't really need to say too much. I mean, Bap, Bap talks about Yarvin enough on his show in a couple episodes that you can kind of like see where the differences and the overlap are. I, I guess, I guess I could say Bap is comprehensive, but Bap has a podcast and it's like kind of a variety show. Whereas Moldbug is like meticulously laying out a system and a thesis and a comprehensive worldview and a system of thought that he brings full circle and he's like reinforcing over time with like more examples and he's like refining it here and there. And that's why I think he's like worthy of this much attention. So, okay, it's after nine and uh, a few of the people are here that I was expecting to come so we could get a real conversation going and then people can request the mic. But yeah, so that's my point about Moldbug. He has a comprehensive system of thought. It's pretty far-ranging. Uh, it's pretty influential. It's, it's extremely influential. And it um, he pre-figured or preempted or predicted a lot of things that... The example I like to give is that he was talking about South Africa and the murder of farmers... And the reappropriation of their land before anyone even knew it was happening. Um, 
and he he uh he he leaves enough vagary that like that and this is actually a strength of his some people don't like this he leaves enough vagary that like his ideas can like take shape in reality because to transplant an idea from paper into the real world there's oh it's always going to be messy a messy process it's always going to like come with it like well there's it always at least runs the risk of like being a letdown or not being like living up to like the ideals you put down so the fact that he's vague is actually a strength i mean he's not vague but he's not like overly prescriptive which i think is a strength so when he he says parallel institutions like you might think uh an actual like conservative harvard but or or or, or somewhere he talks about the antiversity which i thought was in this if somebody can give the citation i can't remember where that was i, mean, I think it's in this one <coughs> and he's talking about like people like us finding PDFs of old books that have been out of print for a hundred years that are like hardcore reactionary thinkers that no one talks about anymore because they, you know, they lost world war two. Um, so that is like the parallel institution that we're building. It's like a whole movement of thought based on wrong think of thinkers that were purposefully like thrown in the dustbin of history like by communists that the internet has like brought about. So, I mean, I could go on, but some of the speakers I was waiting for are here. So I want, uh, today we're going to talk at least about a couple ideas, if not the whole thing of chapter four through nine. I have a couple specific talking points I want to bring up. And, um, I assume other people have other ideas or other observations too. So Adrian Appalachian and Taurus are here. Dallas is here. And then grill. I know you weren't in the reading group, but you've, you could take the mic back if you get the chance. I know you've read Moldbug and you have interesting things to say. And then after we um, kind of get through some of the main talking points, we'll, we'll open it up. So Adrian Appalachian Taurus, do you guys have any opening remarks? Uh, it doesn't have to go off of anything I just said. I was kind of just filling space until the, the official time lot started. I can chime in real quick before we, uh, we start formally. So I like this topic um, because this is usually the one that I think breaks in normies the most easily. Um, I find that when I have to make a defense of Molbug, especially to people that claim that they don't like him for one reason or another, and one of the big ones that they always bring up is uh, his reliance on the accuracy of documents from the past and he does do that a lot where he's like which i understand like the guiding telos behind it the notion like uh we don't want to judge the past by our standards right now we want to imagine how would our ancestors judge how we are today and he believes that there is a, you have a very reasonable and very accurate understanding of the past from um from the historical record, which I have a plenty of friends that do not agree with that and think that the past is, uh, if anything, a, a mystery. The further you go back, a game of telephone where there's less and less information. So um, when people come at me, it's like, well, you know, uh, Mobug's an idiot for, for believing that. It's like, well, I mean, if you're able to, like, understand the structure that he's building, it's like he has 
a, an entire system for understanding how he interprets information. And if you can get that point across of what the cathedral is and what emergent uh, forms of power structures are, it guides its way into how he understands the way the past is, is written about and which groups of people wrote about the past and why you can have a reasonable understanding of it and even, um, and even be able to believe uh, some sources versus others because of that. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, uh, that's where I'll start off and hear what everyone else has to say about Cathedral. Yeah, I mean, dude, he has a quote from Ernst von Solomon in here. And this was 2007. And I, I don't know who the fuck even would have known who that guy was. I mean, I don't think I ever heard of him until Bat brought him up on his podcast. So, <clears throat> and the quote was about denazification, which is like something we all have heard of and know what it was. Like, I mean, like even back in normie days, like from, you know, grade school where they taught you about World War II. But to read a quote from Ernst von Solomon and knowing that he was putting this on his blog, like literally during like the, the first year of Obama is like just the fact that he was doing stuff like that and talking about South Africa, you really have to wonder like how much was he like prefiguring everything that came and how much was he, uh, the reason why this stuff came about in the near future. Um, now Lomez isn't here, but he made it last week. If anybody wasn't here, uh, you know, I guess there was a whole, uh, little, contingent of of people who like weren't even necessarily re relegated to only being online back then because uh steve sailor was writing and i think he was being published was it the national review somebody that's now like banned from banished from every mainstream publication who is on twitter was in the national review at one point and, and lost his job there i think it was steve sailor but somebody can correct me on that the point is, is these guys were all like already being like kicked out of like mainstream. And, you know, I'm sure I think I said this last week, like or somewhere I said that the neocons have done more damage to like true conservative in America than any liberal ever has. Uh, and I really think that they're a huge part of why uh, guys like Moldbug, Steve Saylor, obviously Pat Buchanan other big figures from back then ended up in a no man's land of the internet, which isn't a no man's land anymore, but it was at the time like Twitter wasn't as big back then. Twitter existed, but it wasn't as big back then 4chan. I don't even know if 4chan existed. I don't even know when 4chan started, but it, it wasn't as big. None of this stuff was as big. Facebook wasn't taken over by like the MAGA boomers at the time. So you couldn't really go anywhere <coughs> to read about Ernst von Solomon. You know, you had to go to, to blogs, basically. Um, and 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 even if Moldbug wasn't alone back then, I mean, I'm not a historian of this stuff. I'm not the guy to talk to. Lomez was was reading all these guys back then. He can he can drop more names than me. Uh, but my point is, is that even if he wasn't alone, he's the one who has staying power. He's the one who's picked up steam and kept it going and is now like famous. I mean, dude. I recently learned that James Pogue's two articles combined are the most read, taken as one article, which they're really kind of part one and part two. But uh, the two articles combined by James Pogue for Vanity Fair, 
are the is the most read thing Condi Nast ever published. And the first half was about Moldbug and Yarvin. So think about that. The most popular thing, Condi Nast, not Vanity Fair, but the company that owns Vanity Fair and, you know, 10 other huge magazines, uh, the most popular thing they ever published online was half about Moldbug. So he's the guy, you know, who, who kept it going. Um, so that's that, his legacy. I don't, you know, I'm not trying to, like, argue his legacy, but I do like to point it out. Uh, does anybody else have to have anything they want to say? Um, we can we can basically just get get it going. I don't, you know, we can just take my random ramblings as the <laughs> the opening statement. I do have something to say about the cathedral, but I'll, I'll wait until other people go. Yeah, we we don't have okay, these yeah. hands. We're all familiar with each right. other at this point. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'll just jump in and say something uh, briefly. Uh, and, you know, you brought up BAP and kind of a comparison. One thing that comes to mind that I think is in common between the two is that they both are really kind of teaching you a entirely different way of seeing almost everything. You know, there's this, there's this component to the rhetoric of mold, you know, of course, the red pill analogy and everything, but where he's, he's kind of gently guiding you along and saying, this is going to hurt a little bit because of the shock of how different this is going to be. But bear with me, and let's take it slowly. And there is this way of looking at the world that, you know, an actual uh, legitimate ruler would take this kind of perspective. And this way of looking at history... And we were talking in the chat a while ago about this idea that, um, you know, there's some thinkers who are mostly concerned with particulars, you know, a lot of historians and stuff. Um, and there's some much more philosophically minded thinkers, and I think Moldbug, and I think Bap too are among them, uh, where they really have like just kind of a key, almost spiritual kind of point, like a way of being almost that they're trying to teach you. Uh, and all of the examples and the historical examples and BAPs, you know, incredibly prodigious amount of knowledge about Hellenism and everything um, is all just sort of subservient to this purpose. And so it's like, if you, you know, if you learn from someone more knowledgeable than Moldbug, for instance, um, about British history or something, that he had something like pretty wrong it wouldn't matter too much. You know, it'd be interesting. It'd be worth talking about. But it wouldn't, like, really damage the theory because it's like, okay, well, let's find another example would be kind of the response. And so, yeah, anyways, that, that's just something I wanted to throw out there that what, like, to me, like, what the purpose of the entire kind of operation of this book is, is to leave you with um, something that you, it's just like a feeling and it's a different way a different kind of posture toward uh, kind of the entire history of the world. Yeah. And I definitely think it was effective. And I definitely think he was trying to both recruit. I don't want to say liberals, but I guess we'll just say normies. He, 
He wanted to recruit. See, one of the things I like to say is that, like, I'm the living embodiment of horseshoe politics. I started, like, pretty far left, and now I'm pretty far right. Uh, but, you know, I didn't jump, even though I know that's the idea of horseshoe, is you jump from one to the other. I, I kind of ran the continuum from one all the way to the other. And I, I had a phase, for sure, of being, like, what I call vaguely liberal which was uh, the pe- a period of time where I was like totally checked out from politics at all. Um, but if you ask me what I thought about something, I would give you some like sort of hand-waving dismissal answer that ended up on the liberal side. Like immigration, like, oh yeah, it's fine. You know, what's the big deal? I don't know. Immigration's fine. Not, not, nothing's, nothing's happening with immigration. So, so yeah, let them come, whatever. And it's because I never thought about it. I never looked at it. I never paid attention. It didn't have any effect on me. I didn't watch the news for a long time. And I think that that is like the majority of the country, actually. Like most NPC slash normies, that's how they are. And I think the reason why what you're saying is true, Taurus, the reason I agree with you and the reason why it's effective <coughs> is because Moldbug is talking to them and he's addressing the things that a normal person will have come across in their life. Not a news junkie. He's not talking to news junkies. He's not even talking to, like, people who casually read, like, online politics. He's talking to somebody like me who never watched cable news. But if I was going to get some cable, like, going to get some, like, news of the day... It would because I, in passing, happen to like absorb 15 minutes of the news twice a week, which, of course, was going to be like super liberal. Plus, I had the foundation, like the conceptual framework of understanding the world from my upbringing, which was like a progressive institution. Like, like I'll say a little bit more about this later, but like our educational institution is a progressive institution in the sense that it was conceptualized, invented, and implemented by actual dyed-in-the-wool progressives like John Dewey, who was in, who was like a like the epitome of progressivism, um, and other guys. So when he talks about the founding, and when he talks about the revolution, he talks about a lot in the gentle introduction as well. He's talking about it in terms of like how you probably understand it as a vaguely liberal normie, which is that, like, the revolution was good, monarchy is bad, and we won because we're the good guys. And that's, like, all you need to be able to read this. And, like, I think he's effectively, like, captured those people's attention and changed their minds. You know what I mean? Like, my story of, like, going from, like, being on the left to being apathetic, to being vaguely liberal, to being right-wing, definitely has Moldbug, like, front and center of that story, of, like, Donald Trump got elected. I was like, huh, everybody's saying this guy is terrible, but every time I hear him talk, I kind of agree with him. I should look more into, like, what he's saying and what he's about and, like, the people who follow him. And the first person I found when I did that was Moldbug. So, like... You know, God only knows how many other people that's true for. Thousands, you know. I, I could go on, but uh, Adrian sat his hand up. Go ahead, buddy. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was going to supplement that a little bit. It's interesting looking at, because you have to ask the question when you're reading this, is where did this come from? I mean, 
no one else was really thinking this way at the time. And I, I know if you read through the introduction, um, Molbug makes it pretty clear, like he kind of found it by way of libertarianism. And I think the fact that he was kind of a word cell then well, word cell slash, you know, tech guy that was also reading a lot of supplemental information and seemed to obsess over going through all this old stuff. And he kind of created something that didn't really exist before, at least not in the wider culture in any form. And I do identify with your story on, on a bunch of levels because, I mean, growing up, I mean, I was a kid that, you know, you believed in liberal ideas because that was the right thing to believe in, especially when I was in high school. I mean, like I was a kid that was, uh, you know, really upset when I saw the invasion of Iraq. I, you know, all of my friends and I at the time, uh, you know, you had like the Buck Fush, uh, you know, pins and listening to your, you know, your rock music and being pissed about it. Uh, you know, I was sort of by the time that uh, Occupy Wall Street happened, I was kind of checked out like total apathy and then kind of found my way. I think I talked about this last time through um, like I would say social Darwinist literature via like gothic music, stuff like Death in June, stuff like Boyd Rice. And then it wasn't until Mobug when I started reading uh, Unqualified Reservations, where it was like this is an actual teleological system that describes all of these ideas that, you know, something you know that something's vaguely wrong with the world, but you can't really put your finger on it. And you know that there's got to be something that describes what's a better way to, to go about it. But it's hard because there's so many different people saying all these different things. There's all these old writers, all these new writers. But Molbug identified something that I think was very powerful at the time for me because he was the first person to put it into a language that made sense to me. Um, and then I, if we not jumping too far ahead, but what I uh, also noticed, like you were talking about the education system. He mentions that uh, with the, the Darwin section later on about this idea of like mimetically seeding the population and how, uh, you know, the, the members of the cathedral, the, the powers that be, they, they do this in seeding children with these ideas. So you grow up and it's just like the effortless thing. You don't have to be engaged in politics to have political thinking, even if you're apathetic, because we all grew up in the, in the education system. We all were indoctrinated the same way. Anybody who went through the school system, well, even if you went to a private school, you got hit by it in some form. Uh, and then his also proposing like a means of counteracting that using memetics as well is pretty fascinating. But let's not get ahead of ourselves and jump into the next section yet. All right. Yeah. So, right. Um, OK, so I did have some opening comments to like introduce introduce the cathedral. I wanted to talk today about first the cathedral and then progressivism as both power politics and uh, a religion, like the continuation of Protestantism. But uh, I wanted Appalachian to have a chance to make some opening remarks before I, I gave my kind of statement. Yeah, thanks, Astral. Uh, so yeah, there, there's one just sort of general thing I wanted to say before we uh, really got into this is that, uh, so we're, we're talking about chapters four through nine tonight. Uh, and I think that this specific section is really a, an important shift in um, uh, Open Letter because um, you you go from Moldbug's analysis to um, into Chapter Nine, you really get into more like solutions, more um, concrete plans, and that that's kind of big because when you're when you're tearing things down, you know when you're taking down some some powerful enemy everyone's a friend you know and i, I think Moldbug's analysis is just beyond reproach it's I, I think it's perfect but his solutions are like pretty good you know uh and, and this is 
I think why the left is such a powerful coalition, because for them, it's never time to start building something. It's just tear things down until the lights turn off. So it, it's in, something that's going to be, you know, God willing, hard for the right to navigate someday if we get there. Um, so that, that's just, yeah, that's that's really what my favorite parts are probably chapters eight and, and before, but uh, it's still, it's still really interesting to read good thought about what might be done um, once you've identified the problems as, as I think he does well. So, yeah, in terms of solutions, yes, uh, it's really the last, I guess it's, I think there's 14 chapters. So it's like 10 through 14. He talks about, uh, how, there might be a transition from the system we have now to the system he envisions. And it, you know, it's, it's realistic enough to consider is all I'll say. And nothing about him, except for, he does throw a few things out here that are like full blown sci-fi, but most of what he says is so based in reality and the possible that it's worth considering a lot of people on the right and frankly on the left too, but, it's a, it's a little different uh, because the left has like been getting their way for so long that it's at the point where it's like the most extreme, crazy left wing ideas are like at this point, like possible. But I don't want to talk about that. Uh, that's not exactly true. But on the right, a lot of people. I see a lot of talk about like how things, sh- quote unquote, should be that are just never going to happen. And I, I just don't have the time for, like, playing your fantasy Dungeons & Dragons version of, like, what the world should look like because it's never going to look like that. Um, and the whole accelerationist thing is, like, yeah, if your vision of utopia is literally the world exactly what it was like in 1950, then, like, you're going to be severely disappointed. Uh, but And people get super angry i think part of the reason people get so angry is that uh it disabuses them like the neo-reaction and accelerationism like disabuse i hate using buzzwords but it disabuses them of like their fantasy realm that they've like used as a way to cope with things in the real world being bad and not working out for them and not being in their favor uh and you know Yarvin said on my podcast that a doomer is just an optimist with a longer time frame, which is like exactly right. Like, like long term, things might potentially look a little bit more optimistic than they look in the next 10 years or, you know, by the end of the decade. That's another conversation. But but if you understand Moldbugs working on that time frame, then you understand that he's not like. He's not a cop out. He's not a cope. He's not a doomer. He's saying like, and here's the thing about accelerationism. Like if it takes a generation or two to like for the world to get to a position where our ideas can like actually like start making a difference in reality, a lot of bad things are going to happen between now and then. If that's how long it takes, um, first of all, we might not have that much time. That's a different conversation. And second of all, if it does take that long, between now and then, many bad things are going to happen. And you have to kind of just, like, prepare for them and, like, f- 
figure out a way to deal with it because there's nothing you can do instantly. Like, you know, if they stole the last election, I'm expecting that they're going to steal this election. That's that's how I feel about it. And if we don't get somebody like pretty much Trump himself in, then a lot of the worst like abuses of the left are are going to get worse. Um, I'm getting a little bit too far off the topic, but I'm trying to make the argument that for Moldbug to argue that we have to make right wing politics cool again and we have to reach like young people and we have to like do like right-wing punk rock those things like the reverberations of those things are felt over long periods of time like like i like to think of it at least one generation you know like the things the beats did that take place in their books happened in the 40s they didn't write about them until the 50s and they didn't really change the culture until the 60s. And that's not a value judgment on the beats. I'm just telling you that that's how things work. That's how things play out. That's how long this kind of shit takes, is what I'm saying. Um, you know, everyone knows punk rock started in the 70s, but it was like underground for the most part. It was like CBGBs. But in the 80s, it was like a national phenomenon. Uh, and by the 90s, it was so huge, it like had gone fully mainstream and turned into like pop music, basically. Again, both scenarios just took that I'm talking about took 30 years. Um, so if that's what Moldbug is saying we have to do, then you have to like you have to like have a much longer time frame. Um, I, there's so much more to say about that. I almost regret dropping all that before I change tack and make my point that's specific to the reading. Um, but you know, at this point I'm thinking about it, that the cathedral is such a, the concept of the cathedral is so in the parlance of like political Twitter and the right, that I almost think I want to like open this up to a general discussion. The con the idea was being like the reading group members talk first and then everybody else can come in. But now that I'm about to like actually dive into the material I had planned, um, I think I think I'm just going to let people request. If you want to talk about the cathedral, just request because everybody knows what it is. People people are familiar with it, and I want to talk about it in these terms. Um, the cathedral. The first time I read Moldbug, I wasn't ready for some of like the really far right uh, ideas in here. Um, the idea that the post colonial world order is bad and worse than the colonial world order a lot of that stuff went over my head the the stuff that like what the progressives and the left believe and want now was already kind of baked into protestantism in the in the 19th century in the early 20th century that kind of went over my head it kind of my eyes glazed over glazed over and i actually like skipped to the end of two or three chapters like chapter four and five i think without even finishing them the first time this was around 2015 2016 but the concept of the cathedral like perfectly made sense to me. And I actually thought at the time, because I didn't my my critique of the left was not as sophisticated as it, as it is now. I, I definitely was fed up with them and I abandoned them since for similar reasons and more that Adrian was talking about, like by the end of Occupy Wall Street, it just became clear that these were not serious people, that they were very easily bought off. 
by being pandered to by the Democrats. Uh, any serious issues that they had that I agreed with, they weren't really committed to. Um, culture war stuff was more important to them. Uh, ha- half, you know, the ranks of the left were swollen uh, by millions of people when Obama came around. And, you know, those of us who were a bit older, I, and I was certainly radicalized by the George W. Bush administration and and uh, 9-11, and I was definitely watching Alex Jones back then, and we all knew the CIA was behind 9-11, and Obama, uh, Osama bin Laden was working for <coughs> the CIA or whatever. And then Obama comes along and it was kind of like, okay, well, this is more of the same. Like he's one of their guys. They're like installing this guy. But so many people bought it and seal clapped for it (coughs) that I sort of like walked away like, okay, these these people aren't serious. They'll they'll go for any, you know, black dude with that can palm a basketball that can speak well that they throw up on TV. So I walked away. But my critique of the left wasn't like comprehensive. I didn't develop that for a while. I just kind of stopped caring about it. So the first time I read Moldbug in like 2015, 16, I kind of was like, okay, I see where this guy's going. He's like rehash Chomsky. This is like manufacturing consent all over again. He even brings up Walter Lippmann and Chomsky in the book. So I actually didn't finish the blog. I was like, okay, I get it. I've heard this before, like whatever. But this time going through it, I actually revisited Chomsky. I watched the Manufacturing Consent documentary. And it was a very worthy, uh, it was a very worthy uh, thing to do. A little experiment. Highly recommend anybody who has two and a half hours to watch the Noam Chomsky documentary, Manufacturing Consent. With a critical eye, of course. I mean, I totally reject his fundamental misunderstanding of human nature he he's a he's a radical democrat he's an anarcho-syndicalist who is like basically a like a more pure version of communism than communism is because communism requires a vanguard and a, a a bureaucratic kind of elite to help lead the revolution and then take over the state so that the state can like restabilize itself after the revolution takes over and then of course those people, the, the anarchist critique of communism is those people will hold on to power. Um, they won't like give it over to the proletariat and then they'll form uh, a, just as a totalitarian autocratic regime as the one they tried to replace, if not worse. Um, so that's the anarcho syndicalists. They're like, get rid of that contingent of people and give everything directly to the workers. And Chomsky's uh, analysis of the media is sort of based on that understanding of democracy, which is that, and this is like something I totally and completely reject, but his whole thing is like manufacturing consent is the idea based on Walter Lippmann, who says that like the average person doesn't really have the time or the mental capacity to like, figure out how the world works to, to understand how politics work, to understand like the intricate detailed, complicated interrelationship between economics, politics and geopolitical slash military issues at stake. Uh, They just don't have the time to analyze it and really become informed voters. So you basically need 
And Walter Lippmann, whose book, I think it's called Public Opinion, Manufacturing Consent, was based on, his argument was like, you need this like new class of people to do that for the people and like repackage these things and give it to the people so they can have form like a, a basic understanding of how all these things work. <clears throat> and then they can use that to participate in democracy. And that picture that they're given and this new class that he's talking about is uh, the journalists. That's their job. That's what they're supposed to do. And then Chomsky comes along and says, no, that's that's bad. That is what's happening, but it's not a good thing. And he's got this like capitalistic analysis of it where he basically says that like the media exists to create the goalpost or they create the uh, Overton window and then they they only talk inside the Overton window. And um, the people to farthest to the left of that Overton window are actually like far farther to the right than actual leftist politics and the people to the right in that Overton window are you know the same thing less less far to the right um and what it does is create this like illusion of like uh of like uh debate and 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 like a, like an active marketplace of ideas but really and and it seems like they're like by having Fox News and having CNN and MSNBC, it seems like they're covering the full political spectrum and like encouraging this flourishing like political debate. But really what they're doing is they're limiting political debate and they're keeping your brain within the context and the framework of these limited, <coughs> excuse me, goalposts. And the reason, and I'm getting to Moldbug, this is all very, actually very important. Having watched this video, I now see that this is actually really important for understanding what Moldbug is doing with the cathedral. Uh, so bear with me just for another minute. Chomsky's argument is that the reason why, like the way they pick the goalposts and the way they like construct the Overton window where on the political spectrum it is, is because it benefits the elite and that the media that we get is delivered to us in between commercials and it's delivered to us in the paper in between advertisements and the advertisements are are for like targeted towards like more upper class bourgeois people so they don't want to create a picture of the world that like offends the upper class bourgeois you know newspaper readers because they want to keep them buying newspapers and they want to keep them buying the products that are being advertised in the newspapers. So, of course, like the, the boogeyman here is, of course, capitalism. And I reject this on multiple fronts. Now, Chomsky actually does say some things I agree with, but they're not worth getting into because they're not really related to Moldbug. What Moldbug does is he basically agrees with... Uh, both Lippmann and Chomsky, but he takes it another direction than Chomsky. And he says that, no, of course, this like limited window of discussion isn't about selling products and the advertisers in there. It's about like reestablishing, re-entrenching and building power for the progressives, because the ideas that are discussed within the Overton window, they're not just the ideas that like 
reinforce and 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 garner popular su- support for the Department of State and their uh, you know overseas foreign policy interventionism and things like that, which is what Chomsky says, and which is true. Uh, however, the cathedral, as Mulbug understands it, is actually like the university system and the press kind of working in tandem and think tanks like 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 NGO think tanks and, um, uh, you know, uh, institutions that are funded by different political operatives or different political politically interested um, foundations that have an agenda and that these are the people that like create I, I don't know what to call it the Overton window I guess we'll stick with that term and that they don't do it like to perpetuate like the class system they do it to perpetuate their own power and they do it to create more progressives they do it to create more people who think like they do so that they can create more people to help run the institutions and that the reason why progressivism like continues to to remain in power and grow and gain power over time is because they have set up these institutions in such a way that they're like self-perpetuating and like they accumulate more people uh, now, one of the things in the manufacturing consent uh, documentary is like people accuse Chomsky of saying there's like a conspiracy that like the State Department is like, you know, feeding these stories to The New York Times and The New York Times is sitting around uh, the boardroom and saying like, well, we can't report on this because it goes against what the State Department says. Uh, and Chomsky and Moldbug both say like, no, it doesn't work like that. Like it, it, it's just that like you're more likely to get the job at the New York Times if you, like, genuflect to the altar of progressivism. If you believe the things, if you get your information from all the same sources and you believe the things that these people uh, uh, propagate in in the press, then you're more likely to get the job and keep the job and be able to stay there continuing to propagate these ideas. And it's sort of like this, like, homeostatic feedback loop that, of course, the whole Cthulhu swims left, like the leftward drift that he talks about. Like, of course, it's going to go further and further left because the more you hire these types of people and the more progressivism like picks up steam, the farther they're going to push the Overton window to the left. And you're going to end up with like the Bud Light lady who gets hired to like save the company. But because she's such a dyed in the wool progressive and she's got it like in her bones, progressivism is like baked into like the fabric of her being that the most logical thing for her, of course, is to put a tranny on like the working man's beer can. Um, and, and like, that's like the, that's like what progressivism leads to. So I personally think that like the people, the, the, the progressives of the early 20th century we're looking at like, and this of course is like right after World War One and right after Woodrow Wilson's administration. So like they won, you know what I'm saying? Like they took over, they were in power and they came up with ideas for how to run the state that would keep themselves in power. That's one of the things Moldbug says in these passages somewhere. <clears throat> he talks about how uh, the, 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 the conservatives like get power and they're like, oh, I want to, uh, I want to change like this policy and that policy, and they change this policy and that policy, and then they get voted out of power, and then the progressives come and like 
totally obliterate what they did, and they go. It goes back to the, uh, you know same as it ever was. Whereas the progressives, when they get power, the first thing they do is working on shoring up their power and making sure that it's going to be perpetuated. They're going to entrench themselves and set things up in such a way that they're going to continue to have power. So you have this this guy Lippman, who was a big deal at the time because John Dewey, who helped design our education system and helped design you know the Dewey Decimal System. <laughs> I actually can't remember if that's the same Dewey. I think that might be two different Deweys. But I kind of said that as a joke anyway. This is my last point, though. My point is, is that this guy was... This, this book, Public Opinion, wasn't some obscure text. It was a book that the people who were literally designing like the American progressive institutions were reading and responding to. Um, he said what we need to do is create this like new what Moldbug calls Brahmin class of journalists who feed the, the demos information in such a way that it causes them to vote for things in the way that like we want them to vote for things conscientiously. They were conscientiously doing that. Um, so Chomsky comes along and rejects that and comes up with like a new thing and says that like, no, it's like the state department and it's capitalism. And Moldbug comes along and says, no, actually like Lippman, what Lippman was doing is like the fundamental nature of progressivism. And the reason he did it that way was not to like push certain like programs and not to push like specific policy points, but rather it was to like build the foundation for progressivism so that progressivism remained like the ideological framework of the American like democratic system for as long as possible. And that's what the cathedral is. <laughs> if that makes any sense, like that's what the cathedral is. The cathedral is the, the foundations of progressivism perpetuating themselves through the university systems, because he, he says like who's further to the left, Yale or Harvard. It's a, it's a ridiculous question, unworthy of an answer. <coughs> so the cathedral then is this edifice of progressivism um, setting up institutions in such a way to make sure that they remain progressive so I'd like to hear other people characterize the cathedral however they'd like to characterize it uh, and refute me if I'm wrong All right. Somebody else has got to talk, though. I can't. Uh, I can't be the only one talking. I can. Uh, I can take a shot. So, I just like. Um, I, I we kind of touched on this last time about how we've sort of moved from uh, an order that was more decentralized to one that today, um, like it, it almost seems uh, it's more tempting to accuse people of open collusion of the type that, that Lippin, Lippin was doing, whereas Moldbug is very clear that it's decentralized and there's no structure, but then like, you know, if you read the Twitter files, um, it definitely seems like more of a conspiracy. Um, and one of the things I think, like, is different between the, you know, post-World War One era that you're talking about and today is that at least maybe, you know, up until every, everything after Trump changed because you know, there's the circling of the wagons that we talked about in the Twitter files, etc. But 
in a, in a large way, the, the result of, of that sort of um, you know, educational vanguard that Lippmann called for is the fact that uh, today progressivism is almost a, a culture that was created out of, uh, you know, thin air. Not really, I mean, it comes from, you know, Puritanism, but um, less of a... It was almost a, a culture that was designed to have the qualities you're talking about, where they, they you know, take power for themselves and do things that that uh, result in them having more powerful, more, more power. But if you, especially if you grew up outside of you know coastal centers and then you interact with them, you realize like, oh, this is just this very idiosyncratic culture that doesn't realize it's like, you know idiosyncratic and the, these beliefs which to them seem obvious like oh you know just just be a good person just do this or that it's like 99% of the world thinks you're super weird for thinking that and it's like your specific culture so it almost doesn't need any sort of explanation today other than that it's just you know a very strange culture that that is is in and around uh coastal urban white people so yeah well yeah I mean this is uh, I don't think that's in Moldbug the part about coastal urban white people maybe it is though but this is his like uh, the way L- stuff white people like tribe is the way he, and I, re- I really like that oh yeah 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 I forgot about that I didn't mean to say it's not in Moldbug I meant to say I don't know if it's in the open letter what I was going to say was this is the uh, elf hobbit thing, right? Like, it's yeah. not just, like, there's elves and hobbits and that's a static thing and that's how it is. It's like, no, the hobbits move to the city to become elves. That's why I love, I think it's the bureaucrat who calls uh, calls them disappoint. Uh, what does he call them? Uh, embarrassed yokels. A lot of liberals. In the cities are like, uh, you know, provincial people who are like embarrassed of where they come from because they're, you know, they come from like MAGA country. You know, these people see themselves as like temporarily embarrassed hobbits who move to the cities to become elves to like basically participate in groupthink and become progressives. So, of course, like it's like gone global now. You know, these these institutions are bringing and this is why the things drift left. And he talks about drifting left here. He's saying, like, why why do these things drift left? And, you know, I'm not sure he gives he gives a good explanation, but I'm not sure he doesn't use the terms I'm talking about. Like if if you're creating this, like, come to our coastal elite institutions to be indoctrinated into progressivist thought, if you're going to uh advertise this to people from like other countries and and all over the world like they're going to come and the progressivist thought is going to be for them so then you're going to include all these people who have like totally different priorities than like and they become voters you know if they if they if they move here become citizens they become voters and they have totally different priorities but they have totally different priorities than like the average white american but they are, of course, like further entrenching like the progressive juggernaut um, and 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 forwarding the progressive agenda. 
So in terms of like the cathedral, this is the best possible thing that can happen uh, because it kind of has to like further go further and further and further outside of like the stock American to, uh, you know, spectrum in order to like keep finding fodder to like feed into their ever grinding like leftward you know juggernaut and look what ha- look what's happening in Scotland and England you have like muslims and hindu indian people from pakistan and india who are like the conversation is about like they're white people too like that's how like absurd this gets i think that my issue um some of what mobile classifies right and i and astral I, your last point touches on this nicely there's a segment of the cathedral that was raised in this ideological ethos right that are true believers that that truly believe in um the you know oppressing people with compassion um that espousing comfort as the highest value is the true good and then any sacrifices made to this end are worthwhile. Um, and there are people alongside of them who are able to use this to their own advantage, right? That seek to, that speak the language um, and slither like snakes around these institutions, siphoning off funds, embarrassing their opponents, uh, and bettering themselves. I think that part of what Moldbug's general thesis omits, right, is this, uh, is the distinction, right, between the, between the true believer and uh, the convict um, that populates these regimes. What it does take into account, however, um, is the, the, the churn of the functionary, how these functionaries can come and go once they're disillusioned. Living in a West Coast city, you often see people living there for, you know, up to five years, typically. They do a five-year stint in Los Angeles. They do a five-year stint in San Diego. They do a five-year stint in New York. They do a five-year stint in Seattle. They do a five-year stint in Denver, ad infinitum. Um, And then they become disillusioned with the political or with the real outcomes of their politics. They get what they ask for good and hard. You know, this causes them to leave immediately, right? But the cathedral has self-promoting and self-perpetuating, right? There's always someone who's willing to take this place. There's always someone willing to step in and continue marching down the uh, the long left-leaning path, right? Cthulhu marches leftward. It was made of many, many faces. Uh, I do believe it's, you know, should be pointed out that, in my opinion, the longest tenured people in these movements are not always the true believers, but, but the convicts, uh, the people who are able to ingratiate themselves at the highest level, enrich themselves and find great material comforts in espousing and enacting um, left-leaning policies. What do you mean by, do you say convicts? What do you mean by convicts? Uh, this phrase comes from Dostoevsky's Demons. Fredor the Convict is a fascinating representation of a felon who believes in socialism. He proudly espouses 
and voices his support for socialist ideologies insofar as it allows him to steal, uh, rape, and burn. The convict is, you know, has, has a partner, right? Um, you know, Fredor the convict was licensed out by someone who um, was a third-rate intellectual, didn't really believe in any of it, and was solely using the ideology to you know, better himself, right? And better his status, right? Um, and in fact, was committing far more dangerous actions than Fredo or the convict was. But the idea of the convict is someone, again, who is solely wearing the clothes of an ideology in order to better himself or, at a worse point, you know, satiate his base desires. You can think of some of the, uh, the normal activists or the uh, pedophile apologists who wear, you know, leftist ideology as a way to increase their access to children. Um, they say that it's for equal rights and whatever, but really it's to satisfy a sexual perversion, right? Um, the convict class. I guess one question that comes up for me there is, uh, and this is, um, you know, also if we talk about how, you know, Moldbug is, I guess, 50, this writing is 15 years old now and it, has anything changed? There's this question of has um, has the true belief of progressives gotten more cynical and has it been replaced by a lot more people who really don't believe in anything and are just nihilists? Um who are just kind of playing the procedural game. Um, yeah. And that's ahead. hard to determine, right? Like one thing that I wanted to speak about earlier uh, in Astral's opening monologue was the discussion of things taking a long time in the 80s and 90s, right? The progression of punk rock as an underground scene in the 60s and 70s to the mainstream in the 80s to passe in the 90s and to dead in the 2000s, right? I think that um, with the spread of information, that the, the rapidity of it, the exponential growth of exposure of individuals to information. I think that this happens much, much quicker. I, and that is, that is something I also disagree with Moldbug on. I think that we could be looking at a timeline of a decade at longest um, to five years optimistically to, you know, um, an opportunity, a sizable opportunity uh, for the right wing. Uh, so to that point. Th that's an excellent point. That that's a really good point. It, the internet definitely speeds this up. I I, I should have factored that in. Yeah, you're right. And so, uh, you know, to your point, Appalachian, right? Like, I think that when we're discussing the cynical, like, uh, cynical expressions of ideology for bettering of self, right? There are myriad opportunities for people to do that. You think about the demon-faced Democrat activist, right? Um, I know we all know who I'm talking about. Who uh, has sizable outlays from the DNC and from the Biden administration to make, you know, agitprop on TikTok, um, tongue wagging, you know, four whites of eyes exposed, you know, absolutely demonically possessed, right? It's hard to determine whether or not that he believes it. And it's hard to determine whether the people that he's inspired believe it, right? Um, but you combine the access to propaganda manufacture the instant clout that you can gain from doing this right through, um, you know, algorithmic, uh, algorithmic spread and the general lowering of the IQ of the American population, right? Like you don't necessarily have to have compelling 
propagandistic argument. You can have a good face that plays on some, you know, the predisposition of the people. Um, and you can wear the clothes of certain ideologies for, for a lot better class. So it's hard to determine. I, 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 I tend, I want to agree that there are less true believers now than ever before, but you know, with lower IQ, they might be convinced easier, right? Like it's, uh, I, I wouldn't, I, I don't think that that's a proper angle to attack. I think it's an interesting question. However, um, those are my initial thoughts. So this is a great point. Um, I, I thought that's what you meant by the criminal, but I wanted to make sure. However, I did not know it was a theme in demons because it's, I haven't read that yet. I really need to get to that. So that's really, really interesting that that's in that book. Uh, I look forward to reading that. The first person that comes to mind is, of course, Sam Brinton, who was the hideous cross-dressing, like, what was he, like the nuclear waste disposal czar in America or something like that. And I even remember one time he was talking and he said something about, like, feeling passionate about nuclear waste disposal and you know he spent a lot of time in school learning about it so he was really happy to have the position that he had and i just remember looking at him and being like yeah but your sexual fetish is far more important to you than that of course like no one thinks no one believes that you feel passionate about nuclear waste disposal it's obvious bullshit uh and then he gets caught stealing <laughs> african women's dresses at the airport which is fucking hilarious but of course the joke is on america uh he's the perfect example of what grill is talking about now i agree i i think that this reinforces the way Moldbug says the cathedral works um it's slightly different i don't want to say it's different but it's not exactly what he talks about in the book but it's the same thing in that uh, I mentioned before, Lippmann talks about how we need to create this class and that this class becomes the uh, the journalists and their job. I, I, I went over this. I, I won't reiterate it. But Chomsky, the thing about the thing that Mold, one of the things that Moldbug rejects about Chomsky's argument is that Chomsky's argument says that this journalist class is basically doing the work of some third party. And the third party is the corporations or the State Department or something like that. And Chomsky says, you know, some like 5-10% of journalists are like actual journalists who actually care about like the hard-hitting news story and like finding the truth. They're like actual truth seekers. And then 90% of them are just ideologues. And uh, Moldbug specifically says... Like, what if what if there is no third party that the journalists are working for? Like, what if the journalists are only working for themselves? But instead of looking to re report the truth, they're looking to, like, push their own ideology and their own ideology is progressivism. Uh, so that's why examples like lady, the lady who was working on marketing for Bud Light, who put Dylan Mulvaney in there and why Sam Brinton are actually even though they have details about them that are far outside the scope, not the scope, but the far outside the, the, the text of the open letter, uh, they're still exactly the type of people that Moldbug is talking about. Because the woman, the, the marketing woman, any idiot would have known that that was going to lose you $5 billion at Bud Light. Any idiot would have known that. But because she is 
a true believer in the progressive ideology and the progressive zeitgeist, or the progressive Overton window today now is directly over like child molesting, you know, men in dresses with five o'clock shadows and completely bald heads. That is just the the, defa- the the default person that she's going to use in her marketing campaign, right? Because she is a dyed-in-the-wool progressive ideologue. Sam Brinton, because progressivism, like, perpetuates his, like, disgusting fetish uh, and allows him to be this, like, criminal, as Grill calls him, who wants access to children or, you know, African immigrant, the dresses of African immigrants, like, of course, they have this reciprocal relationship where, of course, he wants to work for the White House because the White House is the locus of the power that is, like, granting him, like, the freedom to do this bullshit. And, of course, they want him to work with them because he is, of course, like, the 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 pinnacle of the ideologue today working today these are the type of people that run the cathedral now i put an edward snowden uh tweet up here because i think i mean i don't know for sure and i feel like if you ask moldbug this he wouldn't even give you a straight answer but everything i've read from him and everything i've heard from him I think that he thinks that the cathedral is an institution unto itself and that um, that that the way I just characterize it, and the way he characterizes it in the book is pretty much like purely how the cathedral functions. And there's no more to the story. And I've certainly there's there's some neo reactionary accounts on Twitter who I think actually know this stuff way better than I do. But they've been following it much longer. Um, I don't want to speak for any of them, so I'm not going to name any of their names, but you see them, they're out there and they don't necessarily reference Moldbug all the time, but the way they tweet and the way they like understand politics and the way they understand like, uh, uh, the, the liberal order of the day is through a neo-reactionary lens. And these people like certainly talk about this as if it's this closed, system this closed feedback loop of self-perpetuating and re-entrenchment constant re-entrenchment of their own power um and that is an element of it uh but i i definitely think that they are doing the work of some other superstructure that exists outside of them that kind of uses them to manipulate public not just public opinion but to manipulate like to manipulate like uh, uh, culture, I guess, to just say to say it in the broadest terms possible, to manipulate culture in such a way that they're able to get their schemes passed through. Uh, a really good example of this is the guy in the White House whose name Anthony. Not Anthony. Uh, I'll look his name up. I keep. I'll look his name up. He's a black guy. He's the head of I think the Department of Defense right now. And one of the main things he has done is like purge the military of like far right people. They're like he, he like implemented this policy of like going through the military and anybody who like posted on their social media, anything that they consider far right. They're like purging them, and like stripping them of their pensions and shit like that. That's like what a sycophant is, right? 
And people are like, no, there is no nefarious overarching plan. There is no outside entity that's pulling the strings that's making this guy do this. He's doing it because this is what he really believes. And while I think it's true that he does really believe these things, of course he really believes these things because he's the exact type of person that these far-right people that he's trying to get rid of are trying to prevent from having power. So by giving him power, the 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 institutions in the country um, are like eliminating their enemies and re-entrenching their own power because they're putting somebody who's just, and this is bioleninism, who's like biologically already predisposed to reinforcing their uh, things that benefit them. Because by doing so, he himself is enfranchised and he himself is put in a position of power. So it's like political uh, progressive politics is like baked into this guy's biology or it's baked into Sam Brinton's, uh, you know, not biology, because I don't know. I don't really understand it. I don't know if it's biological that he is the way he is or just because he's got a mental illness. But it's like baked into the fabric of who he is. He doesn't even need to be indoctrinated into the progressive thought. It's like normal people that need to be indoctrinated. So while everything's falling apart, right? Well, while, while, while everything's falling apart, the military is falling apart, the mili- all the capable people are being kicked out of the military and it's being uh, run, overrun by women who like physically are incapable of like doing the things and are constantly lobbying like, rape uh uh lawsuits against the military which is like bureaucracy that just grinds everything to a halt meanwhile uh we're sending 40 billions of dollars 40 billion dollars and and weapons to ukraine every three months and they're defending our interests like overseas against uh the regime's enemy which is russia so you can't say these things are like a closed system that work purely independently as its own entity to do nothing more than re-entrench itself and perpetuate itself and grow itself as its own organism. They are, there's all sorts of inputs and outputs and it definitely works within a superstructure, which is why I put the Edward Snowden quote up there because the Edward Snowden quote is a CIA operative or a former CIA guy telling the media how the CIA directly intervenes with the press and directly manipulates stories to make them look in a way that's favorable to them and helps them uh, accomplish their own goals and get public opinion on their side, which, of course, public opinion being on their side means uh, voting for things that give them money. Uh, So so. I personally think that this shows that Moldbug's concept of cathedral, while very sound and based wholly in reality, and a much better analysis than Noam Chomsky's, and and by the way, Noam Chomsky's is worth bringing up, not because I agree with him, I don't agree with him, I disagree strongly with him, but the thing about Noam Chomsky that you have to understand is that his analysis of the media is what everyone believed for decades. Like if you were going to critique the media, you were either going to directly quote and cite Noam Chomsky, or you were going to regurgitate some sort of 
vaguely uh, Marxist analysis of the media that Chomsky is the one who popularized. So as far as I understand it, as far as I'm concerned, Moldbug brought the only real comprehensive uh, kind of refutation to Moldbug's critique of the media. And even though I don't think either one of them is completely, totally comprehensive, uh, I think Moldbug's is much closer to the reality um, than Chomsky's. But I still, and I don't quite understand why, but, you know, a lot of people on the right, not just Moldbug, a lot of people on the right, I don't get why they reject this. They don't really like to talk about uh, intelligence agencies actively, covertly manipulating public opinion, manipulating cultural movements, manipulating uh, the media directly with a heavy hand, like direct propaganda. You know, for some reason, I don't understand it really, but that critique has been relegated basically to the far left that pretty much doesn't exist anymore. Um, but it used to exist, and they used to be the only people talking about it until Alex Jones came along. And then Alex Jones, I would say, is probably like the flip side of the Moldbug coin uh, for the media. Whereas I don't know why Americans have to always talk with such extremes. But, you know, you got Moldbug saying there is no conspiracy ever. And um, Jones saying, like, literally everything is not just conspiracy. It's like a fucking false flag. It's like the things the media reports, they're not just like conspiracies. They're actually like staged events, you know, which is like the farthest to the other side of the spectrum as you could possibly be. And I don't really know why people, I guess because it doesn't, I don't know, maybe it doesn't like garner enough like clicks uh, to to not be extreme, to say it's like one or the other. You know, I don't know. But but certainly Moldbug's cathedral is that it's purely for re-entrenchment of power. Um, and I actually would like to read a quote. I'm going to let other people come in because I'm going on too long now. Um, but, that, but it reinforces my argument that that's what Moldbug says the cathedral is. And I'm also going to re- read from the Snowden tweet, but uh, Adrian's had his hand up and then Bones just joined us. And anybody else wants to talk, please uh, put your hands up. Certainly. I'm uh, very happy that the bio-Leninism topic came up because uh, that pretty much covers this idea of like, we, we're talking about these three types that exist within the cathedral. Or, uh, you mentioned two, but I, I would argue there has to be a third. We have your um, your criminal element. These are people that are motivated by self-interest, but it's self-interest. It's not necessarily politically motivated. It's stuff like um, like uh, sexual uh, compulsions, fetishes, a desire for criminality. These are people that will leverage any system of power that they can have to get what they want. And right now they can rightly see that there's institutions that will give them a pathway to accomplish those things, whether they're criminals or street crime guys or, or we were talking about this uh, nuclear you know got like all of these people right they're able to either satisfy their fetish or their compulsion for criminality whatever it is they have to do through systems of power that exist because there are perverse incentives built into the system then you have your true ideologues like this woman from uh budweiser from anheuser bush these are people or also uh was it secretary of defense right these are people that have vested self-interest because they truly believe that 
they're doing the right thing for the right political reasons. And they're, they're distinct from the criminal element because they're, they have the right philosophical ideas for the power structure. Then I would argue there, there also is a third. And these are people that are, I wouldn't necessarily call them craven social climbers. They're the people that actually have power itself. To them, power or, or I would say ideology is totally agnostic. They leverage whatever ideology is there for their own benefit. These are the people that will put someone like that secretary of defense in power because they know he's going to erode the existing power structure and he's going to work in his own self-motivated way. To yeah, make them yeah. More so, power. It, it was Lloyd Austin, by the way. I just That's had to jump one. in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I brain farted his name. Lloyd Austin. Sorry about that. Go, continue. You're, this nope. is great. This is super great. No problem. Uh, and then they also, these the, the same powerful people, this this third type, the ones that actually hold it, will also put someone like Sam Britton in because they know that despite the fact that he would have accomplished nothing if not for the perverse incentive structure that's there to get him there, he's a useful idiot, much in the same way as the useful idiots of communism and memorial, but not necessarily, this isn't necessarily communism, this is something different. But they know to put someone like that there because he's always going to act on his fetishes and he's always going to act to erode their enemies by behaving the way that he will, that he is predictable the same way that the secretary of defense is. You can go ahead. Bones. Good evening, Bones. Yes. Maybe he's got a mic problem. I don't know. Uh, hi, can you hear me? Yes, hello. I just wanted to say thank you to Astral. Thank you to Astral, and and um, thank you because that brought up a point that I wanted to talk about, which is um, something that I think is really paradoxical. That I kind of in my my mind call like eating the sausage that you make referring to that term of, you know, knowing how the sausage gets made. And I think it's very interesting that professions really truly believe what they do. So journalists believe journalism. And I know some journalists that have been journalists for like 20 or plus years. And every single morning they get up and they read either online or on paper still the New York Times and the Washington Post and just for some balance, you know, the, the Wall Street Journal. Um, and they believe it. They believe what they read. And advertisers believe advertising. Physicians and other scientists, science-adjacent professions believe peer-reviewed journals. And people tend to believe whatever propaganda their own organizations put out. And I've always found that very strange because when you really talk to people that are doing the research and I have, um, in medicine, for example, some of it is legit, but a whole lot of it, a whole lot of it is not legit. Um, you'll see people, the vast majority of people that just have to do some research project to get their next level up of degree, whether it's masters or whatever, they'll do some very, very easy survey, you know, they'll send out a survey to people, explain your level of stress, you know, or, or, or whatever. Um, and so every single person that is a part of this process understands that there's, that most of it is bullshit. 
but they believe it anyway. And I, I just think that's really strange. Um, and to me, that kind of strikes at the psychology of why the cathedral is self-perpetuating without top-down directed influence. Um, and part of it could be answered by the question that you're by, by the by the you know saying that people are not going to go against what's in their own self-interest. You know, it's you're not going to become skeptical of your livelihood. But I don't know. I, I think it's maybe even more than that, even more than just the money influence, but the identity of what your profession is. Um, I thought about recently, you know, when it came to medicine and science, that if you take away, you know, believing in, quote, unquote, the science, it's like you're you're driving at high speed down a road that doesn't have any lines on it, and you're trying to take some turns, and there's no road signs, and you don't know where you're going, and you have to start figuring things out again from first principles. It's very, very scary. And, you know, it, it, it could be potentially much more dangerous than just kind of going along with whatever has worked so far, even if deep down you, you kind of know that a lot of it is false. Um, so I don't know. I was wondering what everyone else thinks well, about that. Yeah, he 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 uses like what I think is one of the most powerful not 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 powerful examples but one of the best examples uh prescient examples. I think it's in the gentle introduction though. Um uh, but it's better than any any example he gives in this book. So I'm going to use this one where he says that if you're a scientist and you all you want to do is research, uh you you live on grants. Like you have to get a, you have to propose some research you want to do, apply to get a grant, receive the grant, do the research, reach the conclusion, publish it, and then start it all over again. So he says, if you're a climate scientist, the only way you're going to get that money is if you're doing research that like reinforces the concept of global warming. That like you're going to get research money, grant money, to a study uh, that's going to reinforce like the progressive ideology, right? So in this book, and I was looking for the passage, I have it highlighted, but I can't find it now. Um, I had it though, but he says something to the effect of like, if you knew somebody, like let's say you knew a young person in college who is like, what should I major in so that I can get a job? But instead of asking, what should I major in so that I could get a job? They ask you, which political party should I join? to get a job, you would tell them the progressive party, because if you get out of college and you have progressive politics and you want to get into, say, journalism or get into, say, uh, 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 university professorship, you know, if you have progressive politics, you're more likely to get that job. Um, so, I mean, I could repeat this ad infinitum. He gives many examples. Everybody kind of understands that. But this is why people believe the things that they believe, because even if you are, say, a doctor who disagrees with this thing, these things, say you're a surgeon, right? You or 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 or, or some sort of interventionist, right? A doctor who makes interventions, because if you're like a primary care doctor, you just make money by the number of patients you see. So it doesn't really matter. But if you're a specialist you make money based on the number of interventions that you do. So like an orthopedic doctor who does surgery on people's joints and backs, when they see people with back pain and shoulder pain, they're like, they are going to suggest doing surgery because if everybody comes in and they say, you don't need surgery, 
they're not going to make any money. Um, so if you apply this concept to like education or to journalism, this is how the cathedral perpetuates itself in the same way. But you can, the thing is, is you can be a doctor and like reject mainstream ideology and be as far right as you want. As long as you like perform your doctorly duties, it doesn't matter. But if you're a journalist or a politician or, or, or a, uh, a, uh, uh, professor, these beliefs, that's why that's the cathedral and doctors aren't the cathedral. You know what I'm saying? Like you would have to go way outside of like the, your job duties to start preaching right-wing politics as a doctor. Now you could like, you could easily refuse to give people a COVID vaccine, or you could easily refuse to believe any of the COVID bullshit and still be a lucrative doctor, but you can't be a lucrative journalist and like push, you know, fascist ideology through your work, through the work itself, you will lose your job instantly, you know? So it's like, it's really simple. It's really cut and dry. It, it, there's, there's almost like nothing even worth talking about now. You know what I'm saying? But to be honest with you, in my opinion, if you disagree with me, I'd like to hear this. But in my opinion, like in 2023, like, Faith in media institutions is completely shattered. Like there was a point in time, 2007, when mold, that's why Moldbug's so important and why Moldbug's such a visionary. Back then, like almost nobody fully rejected like the media as like an edifice. The only people who did were on the fringes, like me, who was watching Alex Jones in like 2004. Um, and was reading people like Robert Anton Wilson, who was like a drug addled, you know, Bay Area fucking anarchist who believed in like Aliester Crowley. Those were the only people who told you that there was one political party in America. There was a, but they all came across like completely batshit wingnut crazy people. And half of them were. Moldbug was like the only reasonable person who came along and like started pushing all this stuff. And now everybody believes it now. You're a ridiculous brainwashed, you know, liberal, I guess, if you believe this. Like, the average person now knows that all of this is bullshit. Uh, and that's why we're talking about Moldbug today. Go ahead, Grill. Uh, actually, Taurus. Oh, no, go ahead. Yeah, Grill, can I throw Taurus. something in there? Yeah, because, throw it in, Taurus. Um, yeah, thank you. So, um, I, yeah, I, Astro, I agree with you, but. What I would add is that what people the 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 dominant um, frame for this uh, you know this uh, growing suspicion of the media and stuff is this kind of like you know Eric Weinstein style um, nostalgia for um, you know mid century. Um, uh, respectable journalism and you know well so like here's a black pill for you what what if over the next 10 years we see you know increasing entropy of this system and then there's a reform movement and then it becomes you know a little bit more restrained and a little bit more polite and it does basically whatever it needs to do to recapture its market and then that goes on for another 100 years you know like that's the kind of thing that could happen i think on and I'm not saying that I'm predicting that that will happen. I'm just saying that 
just be like I wouldn't be too optimistic or that that people are becoming suspicious because part of what you have happening is you know a lot of really old people in these industries because there's a failure to properly turn over and basically just engineering problems and like engineering problems can be solved so you know the cathedral could potentially solve this stuff or find a um find find refine its niche uh in that area and and keep going uh it can be extremely resilient well um, my my i i i think i agree with you like at the end of the day but i disagree with you on the number of people i think there's way less people who buy into any of this bullshit i just think that the institutions who exert control in America uh, have have really like fortified themselves in such a way that like the democratic processes that depend on the media are no longer like the thing that determines who's in power. Uh, and they've sort of captured, I don't want to say they've captured the institutions, but they've captured the process so that like it doesn't matter how unpopular they are. I, I definitely think there's like way too many millions of people who do buy it. But uh, I, I think the 2020 election was stolen. And I think that they're uh, going through the country just actively dismantling everything for a reason. They're, they're actively Brazilifying America so that they can like be assured to remain in power as like the one party state. And of course the GOP is part of this, uh, which, which is not to like totally refute what you're saying Taurus, but my opinion is that public opinion isn't all on the same page, but it is against the regime. You know, it's just that the people who agree with it are so fervent and strident that like they're burning cities to the ground in order to uh, to keep themselves in place. Uh, more to say on that. It's not as simple as that, but we got to move on. Lots of hands. Um, Alvaro, I want to give you the mic first because you're the newest guy here. It's good to see you as a speaker. Hey, thanks for that. And, and thanks for holding, the, thanks for having this space. I think it, it um, Moldbox's denial or uh, well, his strict position that there's no group coordinating everything about and at the top of, of it all it, it can really be puzzling but uh, well i mean i think uh, at one time he he refers to this idea as a cope he says that we should not be thinking this way because it makes us think that it's going to be easy we just have to destroy the ring and that's it or for a more sumer approach you're, you just have to destroy like the big motorship and everything's going to come down at the same time and this is probably not the way he sees it and I think the explanation for, for, for this is based on his like libertarian past that's, uh, that he doesn't completely get rid of. And I mean, there's things on there that you shouldn't get rid of because they're just correct. So if we think about the spontaneous order, the idea that the market, uh, just by the incentives it places on people, doesn't really need anybody to be at the top. Well, I think that the point that Moldbox is trying to make is that the system that is getting you these outcomes doesn't really need those people at the top. Like the incentives are there and everybody's just moving along. The machine is moving along. And even if they were to disappear tomorrow, it, it's, it's likely we wouldn't even notice. Uh, I think you, you, you alluded to this regarding, well, the doctors and everything. And 
Well, for example, a doctor during COVID, he's not really looking out for, when he's researching COVID, he's not really looking out for the best way to, to treat his patients. I mean, some great doctors are going to be doing it. The, what he's looking out for is how he can practice before, without getting in, uh, sued. So he's just looking out for himself. Uh, and that's, he's just doing, he's just going through the motions. He's just doing every day. He doesn't realize he's doing any power play. He doesn't realize there's any politics going on. Uh, just to keep it short, I think the analogy that he gives I th uh, uh, regarding the cathedral, like this lake that gets uh, flooded with like peak residue or something, uh, it's, it's very apt because as we have it, the system that produces knowledge that is universities and everything has been uh, uh, infected with access to power. And once you have that access to power, the results are going to be there, whether there's a person above or not. And well, I do think that there's, it's obvious that there is some sort of coordination, like making all the false flags and media events that are completely fake, but I don't think that they're actually, I mean, I'm not sure that you could say they're actually helping or that they're, their contributions to the actual like results that society is getting is is notable. I, I maybe the point is that once the machine has been set in motion, it just works by itself. Yeah, I think I think most people agree with that, and I like that you use the word incentivize because that's what I meant. Where I'm like, a lot of this becomes very very simple, um, but the reason why it's needs to be explained or it needed to be explained in the past is because uh, these people uh, all try to present themselves. I mean, and when I say these people, I mean, journalists, doctors, uh, climate scientists, they have this whole fucking facade of objectivity that they're these cool, detached intellectuals who are making decisions and carrying out their practice based only on, uh, research and and reason and proof and evidence and journalists are only out there to give you an unbiased, fair and balanced, you know, uh, package of the truth. That window dressing is why this this analysis needs to be brought out because people buy it. People go to the doctor and think that doctor really cares about their health, and you know, a lot of times they do, but sometimes they don't. Uh, Sometimes what they're concerned with more is incentives and their incentive, you know, if your job is to report on the people in power, clearly the incentive is to favor the people in power. It should be the simplest thing in the world. Uh, but uh, of course it's not. Um, it's very hard for me to pick who should go first. Uh, I will assume the position. Uh, there you go, brother. Let me, uh, I want to do this because I, I want to address a couple of people's uh, points. Uh, Bones, uh, you spoke earlier about people presenting and uh, producing slapstick, farcical research in order to progress their ways up the uh, ladder. That they understand that the research that they're producing is lackluster. They understand that other people around them are producing lackluster research. Um, and... Again, I think that uh, a hazing ritual is meant to be contextualized. I think the uh, that most modern upper echelon educational systems are meant to be hazing rituals, and are meant to be, and these hazing rituals are of course meant to be heavily contextualized. Anyone who has been involved in a 
fraternity or sorority understands that the things that they went through to join said fraternity or, and uh, sorority are meant to be applied in context and not to be looked at on the face. Um, and this is a binding ritual. That this is something that is, is, you know, seeks to ingratiate themselves with their credentials, to instill within themselves a respect for their credentials, and to instill within them a respect for others with these credentials. Um, secondly, I would like to push back slightly against Astral's discussion about doctors not being able to produce right-wing thought. I think that this is a, uh, a mode that was applicable in the, up until really, um, up until really Obamacare, right? But since, since the Obamacare mandate passed, since the, you know, vertical integration of the insurance industry with the hospital industry, with the primary care industry, and with the umbrella corporations of healthcare as such, you know, we saw uh, doctors who refused to go along with COVID, COVID protocols fired, um, you know, dismantled. The nurses were at the, the forefront of this. Nurses who refused to intubate patients who had, let's say, a blood oxygen concentration of 85 for about 30 minutes, right? This is considered a warning, was considered a warning sign in 2019. And in 2020, this meant that you needed to be intubated uh, and heavily sedated throughout the duration of the intubation period. Right. Um, we saw numerous times, you know, nurses and physicians, both who insisted on other uh, treatment, other treatments and, uh, you know, maybe uh, not even other treatments, but just saying, hey, this is a problem. Right. Get get fired out of their jobs if they were underneath the umbrella of healthcare, Right. And as we see the constant pouring of money into massive healthcare conglomerates for both treatment, which, you know, by the way, I think that we have probably about $250 billion, if, um, you know, maybe a little more, maybe a little bit less, that are still unallocated from the CARES Act that are going through HHS, that are going through uh, NIH, that are going through CDC, right? And this is money that can be used to further incentivize vertical integration, further incentivize regime compliance with, uh, let's call it healthcare equity positions, other things like that. So I, I do I do agree that at one point in time, in the very recent past, that this was something that you can get. And and maybe in your town you have a physician that's not underneath an umbrella corporation. Maybe maybe you have a great primary healthcare physician who is independent, who can write you prescriptions without going through three bureaucrats that will oversee all that he does or all that she does, right? Um, but more and more that's that's becoming, you know, not the case. You know, fourth and finally, um, the integration of messaging is is increasing at a pace I don't think any of us is ready for. I'm the, I know that myself, I'm not ready for the complete and total alignment of media messaging. It, it used to be um, during the Trump administration, Reuters or AP would print something. Then from Reuters and AP, you would have a little bit deeper understanding presented in the Times. And then everything else was going to be distilled downstream from that, right? But during the, the final year of the Trump administration, right, we had AFL-CIO senior executives meeting with, you know, thousands of members of the media on Zoom calls, right, enforcing breakout rooms where they would present the media message. You know, they would... You know, really, they really brought about extreme, brutal fascism um, in our media industry, right? Um, they outlined what was going to be discussed. They outlined how to frame things. They outlined everything that was going to be pushed from both an editorial perspective and a news perspective. 
with ChatGPT and with the with the increasing alignment of a text production underneath a central node, you know, this is going to rapidly increase. This is going to be, you know, the mechanisms by which the cathedral is able to solidify itself and impose itself on the unprepared mind is increasing uh, drastically, rapidly. Um, and the end, we just saw BuzzFeed get shut down, right? We should be prepared for massive layoffs in the news sphere, right? They, they understand that the role of a person to regurgitate what Reuters or what the AFL-CIO is saying um, you know, you don't really need that many people, especially when you have a program that, if given the proper prompts, can do this. I would not be surprised if we see major news organizations out, you know, um, you know, outsource the vast majority of publication to OpenAI, um, to Microsoft, to the conglomerate. You know, and the alignment of media messaging that's going to come out of that is going to be sharp and distinct. I think that people's appetite for differing viewpoints has been solidified into either seeking a fox news or b cnn i think that the middle ground for the mass consumption um has has vanished distinctly right i think that you know the msnbc's of the world will be no longer even though that was already closely aligned with cnn um, so i think that is what I, yeah that is it i know i addressed a lot of points there no, that's a great point, and I made the point either last week on Orange Show uh, that I think what we see now is like the logical evolution of the cathedral. That uh, that 